Hey folks, Philadelphia Story coming right up. Fun movie. We had a lot to say about it. Want to talk a little bit about the movies that we're going to have scheduled for this year on Sanity Up the Movies. So Philadelphia Story is coming in a little bit late, but it was actually supposed to be our Valentine's Day slash romance February episode. And we're going to do themed months this year because we really enjoyed talking about Disney princesses last year. We really enjoyed talking about Indiana Jones. We obviously still have patron goals that we will meet if we fulfill them. But we realized we wanted a little bit more variety and we wanted to give people a more all-encompassing view of cinema. You know, if this program is infotainment and there's the info part of the tainment, then I want to make sure that we are talking about the history of film and giving people some breadth as well as some depth. And so we're going to do different things to sort of accomplish that goal. Not to sort of accomplish that goal, to definitely accomplish that goal. So from now on, January is going to be staff picks. So Ben can make us watch some weird samurai movie. February is going to be rom-com, which Philadelphia Story obviously fulfills that. March is going to be animated classics. April is going to be foreign movies. May is going to be action, adventure, blockbuster, whatever. I have written a splashy action here. June, comedy. July, sci-fi fantasy. August, musicals. September, Spielbergia, Amblin, nostalgia, 80s. October, suspense, mystery, horror. November, drama. And December, Christmas. And that means at least one of the episodes of those months will be those things. We also have to cover big releases. And remember, we do at least two episodes a month. The day that it normally releases Thursday. But I think it'll be on the second and fourth day of the week because i don't know that's what seems to be happening it doesn't really matter but you'll get two of them and we'll mix up the schedule a little bit i think when we have to do like a patreon reward thing or hit a series real quick we might burn through it a little bit quicker so get some extra stuff we are doing deep dives as you'll find out i mean this review of philadelphia story that you're about to hear is longer than philadelphia story that's what we're doing. We're going for breadth as well as depth this year. And we will we'll try and announce these things ahead of time so that you can know what we're watching and you can watch along with us. So uh, watch Philadelphia Story real quick and then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. It's a great movie in its way. It has its problems. Okay, we'll talk about it starting now. Oh, go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies to listen to Wanda review or Wanda vision reviews and to listen to Clone Wars reviews, which we will get back to as soon as Wanda vision ends. Yay. Okay. Here comes Philadelphia story. Love ya. You are now listening to sanity at the movies, the Philadelphia story edition. Yay. 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 You may, you may be wondering, what did they do on the Philadelphia Story edition of Sanity at the Movies? Well, I'll tell you. We talk about the movie, The Philadelphia Story. A Hepburn Grant, actually, no, Cary Grant was very specific on this point. A Grant Hepburn Stewart production. Cary Grant was in a position to dictate terms. Top billing. Top billing, even though Hepburn is the star and Stewart has more dialogue than Grant by a long shot. Grant dictated the terms they needed Cary Grant because he was popular and Catherine Hepburn was box office poison and Jimmy Stewart was a guy that people liked who should have won the Oscar for Mr. Smith the year before but had not he did win the Oscar for this though but he always thought it was a consolation prize for Mr. Smith goes to Washington 
and he sent the Oscar to his dad's hardware store. And part of the legend of Jimmy Stewart is that the Oscar just sat on a shelf with a bunch of other medals and war trophies and stuff on some random shelf in his dad's hardware store. So, man of the people, Jimmy Stewart. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's like that. It's like another Jimmy Stewart movie says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. All right, guys, let's talk about the Philadelphia story. I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. That's Ben. Hello. Ben, are you the Jimmy Stewart, the Cary Grant, the Catherine Hepburn, or the Ruth Hussey of this podcast? Our listeners will have to find out. Or I, I hope you're not the Uncle Willie. I hope so, too. Or really anyone else. I hope you're yeah. not the dad. No. I hope you're not. I guess you could be Dinah. She's kind of fun. The daughter. Yeah. The younger daughter. I like her. Yep. Yep. She is fun. You could be the mom. What character in Philadelphia story are you? I don't know. I don't really want to be any of them. They're not the greatest people in the world, no. for the most part. Well, why don't you introduce the other gentleman here by telling us what character in the Philadelphia story <laughs> <laughs> you think he is? This is a great assignment. I like it. I feel like you're that guy, the editor of Kid, editor of Spy Magazine. Mm-hmm. You're giving me a, a nasty assignment. Anyway. That makes you Mike. Uh, that's right, it does. Right, so you're Jimmy Stewart. Right. You must be Cary Grant. From the Philadelphia story. What's his name? C.K. Dexter Tracy. Haven. 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 Yeah. Haven. Tracy's the... I know. It's Hepburn. Yeah. Yeah. This is Jake. Jake Mentzel. Yep. Our very own Cary Grant. That's me. Cary Grant. The man who seduced a girl, married her, became an alcoholic, slapped her around a little bit, divorced her, came back and enacted my elaborate plan to break up her marriage and woo her back and married her in front of her ex-fiance's family, apparently. That's what they call a flex. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a, good it's job. It's a flex. It's <laughs> a nice flex. Yep. Yeah. There, there are a few movie heroes that are as alpha from scene to scene as Cary Grant. And I'm not exaggerating. This is like John Wayne style energy. And Cary Grant doesn't always bring that. But in this particular movie, he is aggressive. He is, he is the alpha dog. That scene where he walks in, it's almost frightening the way he treats Hepburn some of the time. He makes her move. He he just shoves her with, I think when, when he first enters yeah, her he house. Yeah, he pushes her back. He makes her take several steps back with her body. I don't think John Wayne ever did that. I don't think Marlon Brando did that. I, the audacity of Grant throughout the whole movie, Grant's character, the the whole, my wedding present to you is a, is a model of the boat we spent our honeymoon on. Yeah. <laughs> In in he totally betas George. Oh man! Like George. Oh yeah. From, takes it. George sits there and takes it. Like George doesn't even know that he's taking it though. Yeah. Right. George, George is just uncomfortable. They, like something is wrong. <laughs> Could it be all the intense sexual chemistry with the power of a thousand suns between my fiance and her old husband? I don't know. <laughs> I just know that I feel bad, and my body language shows it. <laughs> I feel like I should just. Go off screen for a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie, uh, I can never decide whether I like or love this movie. The part of me that doesn't quite love it is because the movie is, in fact, a little bit scuzzy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a tr- tremendous movie that tells a terrible story about terrible people. Yeah. and But it is like top to bottom, just as a work of of art like it is one of the most complete masterful works of art 
in film. And like if you think think about the dialogue, like the throw off lines. Oh, they're better than the 90% dialogue in of anything. Lines that people labored over in other movies. In in movies in the AFI top twenty. Like the dialogue in this movie wipes the floor with most any movie that you can pick. Yeah, I would put it in the top 10 with Casablanca and Double Indemnity and a couple other great dialogue movies in, in the, terms of just the, the wit and depth and quickness of the dialogue. And the delineation of the characters, it's not Aaron Sorkin where they all talk the same. The Ruth Hussey character has a very dry wit and then Cary yeah. Grant's aggressive and then Jimmy Stewart's got his Midwest Jimmy Stewart thing going on. And, and Catherine Hepburn's her own thing. Yeah, Catherine like, Hepburn is her own mm-hmm. thing. That's for sure. And so then you take you take that that dialogue, and then you have, I mean, the casting and just the timing of it all, and the performances that they got. Now this is a murderer's row. Could you name a better cast besides things like maybe Casablanca or just those mm-hmm. one in the million kind of lightning in the bottle movies? And and that's really what you get here is is lightning in a bottle. It really is, and you see the importance of. Ruth Hussey's character is so integral to that mm-hmm. that whole thing, but you don't even think about her because she's just bringing color, playing off of Jimmy Stewart here and there, and a little bit off of Cary Grant here and Hepburn here and there, and it's just yeah, no, she's, man, she just brings that extra dimension that elevates this whole film. She was probably my favorite character in this particular viewing, just because she would show up at exactly the right time and be like, "I'm here to collect the body of." Well, Macaulay Connors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so the reason I she stood in such stark contrast for me this go around is because I watched High Society mm-hmm. a couple weeks, maybe a month. People don't know ago. what that is. It is the Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, and Grace Kelly remake that of of this of Philadelphia Story as a musical. With, with, as a musical, twenty which years later, obviously sounds terrific, but is garbage. Yeah, it's it's in. It's hard to tell how much it's garbage in and of itself because you have it to contrast against this lightning in a bottle of a movie. But it's so flat in comparison. And you don't think of Bing Crosby as being flat, but he is flat because he's in comparison to Cary Grant and the sexual energy. And I, I don't think there's a better way to talk about it than that. Sorry. No, this movie is all about sex and it's all about sexual energy and it's all about sexual chemistry. And that's, that is the potency of the movie. You don't have to love it, but that's what it is. And you could think just in and of themselves, you got Bing Crosby, you got Frank Sinatra, you got Grace Kelly. You've got people that stand for those things, but it's 20 years later, they're older. And, and then the movie just doesn't, it just doesn't have that verve. And then I can't even picture who plays the Ruth Hussey character. The Ruth Hussey character. They just didn't care. They wrote that off. Yeah, which is a colossal mistake. It was a massive mistake. But it shows the genius of them taking that character just as seriously in in this movie and how how much it adds to and elevates the whole movie. And so that, to me, was just like one of the strongest contrast points with High Society. Well, it's a fascinating movie to maybe watch just as a, a filmic experiment, just to sort of teach yourself about how movies work. High Society, I mean, because... It's basically working with the same script and the same dialogue. Same dialogue. More, more or less. Constantly. But you have the laid back energy of Bing Crosby, the laid back energy of Frank Sinatra, and the very demure energy of, of, Grace, Kelly. of Grace Kelly. She's not a citadel to be conquered. Grace Kelly is her own kind of goddess, but she's not a Hepburn style goddess. And those two men are not sexual aggressors in the way that uh, Grant and Stewart in his Stewart the, way and, are. And it's because they're not going to go off brand. 
and their brand is gentlemen. No, uh, Bing Crosby's whole brand was, hey, fella, like, uh, I'm just Bing Crosby. I'm here doing my thing. Like, <laughs> I'm, that, I'm going to charm you with my voice. It's and a gentleman my, yeah, yeah, it's, Bing Crosby doesn't have to get the woman because the woman goes after Bing Crosby. I mean, that's, Which that's, is also true of Cary Grant, except that... Not in this movie. Not in this movie, and he doesn't have to... He he can play it the other way, and he's showing you he can play it the other way, and man, does he play it the other way. Well, and it's 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 disturbing. If you like Cary Grant and you're used to him, this is a really weird outlier of a Cary Grant performance. He's reserved. He's still... Like, you, you, you expect him to do all the stuff that Jimmy Stewart does in this movie. Yeah. J- Cary Grant can usually be charming and lively Funny and, and kind of... Mm. He's being cute. He's not being cute in this movie. No. He he's here to exact his revenge and get his woman back, and that is his mission. He, he has absolute one hundred percent confidence. He knows the outcome before he begins. He has planned this. He is working his plan, and he is smirking as it unfolds. Like, and he doesn't have a great deal of patience for Jimmy Stewart or love lost. There, it almost feels like the actors don't like each other, just because not because they probably they don't, but just because it's so effective and. He's dismissive of Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart just doesn't matter that much. The only thing that he has eyes for is Hepburn. And he he knows he knows the game. He knows the score from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And so and it, it doesn't even bother him that she's flailing and she's going to go out and flail herself into a a fling or almost fling with Jimmy Stewart's character. That's part of the process. He understands that. He's not bothered. He knows her. And... That just means that he's winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... And all of that is communicated in the movie. You don't have to, like, sit and, uh, and, and, and create that to appreciate the, yourself, to appreciate the movie. That Like, that's just there. That's not... That's barely subtext. It's text. Yeah, if anybody thinks that they didn't do sex in old movies, just watch this movie. It, it, it doesn't have sex scenes, but man... It's as... It has as much sexual energy as any film you've ever seen. Uh, mm-hmm. Much more than it, it actually. If you just had some dumb little 1990s style nude scene or something in the middle of it, it would it would take the energy out of it. It would actually pop the balloon. Like it's precisely because we can't just do it. Playing and building that tension. That man. the tension keeps building and building and building, and it's intense. The only thing that I can really compare it to, and it's a, it's a natural comparison because it's another redhead that always tends to get tamed in these kinds of movies. But the Quiet Man. Yes, the energy exactly. between Wayne and O'Hara in The Quiet Man. Well, and that's again what, is that same kind of crackling. Whoa! I can't believe. I, I guess I should. I should cover my kid's eyes, even though nothing is happening. Exactly, and it's because, and it's why they miscast Grace Kelly, and they fundamentally, fundamentally misunderstood the nature of this movie and how they formulated high society, mm. which is this is just a taming of the shrew. You use the word taming, and that's what it is. It's the taming of the shrew, kind of thing, which is just like. I mean, Shakespeare got it too. Sexual tension. That's the entirety of this play is sexual tension. And I remember seeing a version of Taming of the Shrew that actually played it that way. I think it was one of those modern dress versions. And I actually had to turn it off because I was like, okay. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. But I think it's probably not inaccurate to what Shakespeare intended. It's all about these people that actually really are, for, for lack of better language, folks, they desire each other and they're putting up these impediments and they're playing these games and and it's honestly it's the it's the game that real it's the game that real romance is made of Mm -hmm. it's it's actual sexual tension it's actual is this man worthy of being vulnerable to 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to test him here and here and here. And if he shrinks back from the test, he's not worthy. And and Grant's going to conquer her like a citadel. Yeah. Is Will this woman submit? That's is it. Sorry. That's, and he's that's all just it deter- he walks in the door determined to never give her an inch and to never take one step back. And if, if you see the movie with that lens, he never takes one step back. He never has one step of retreat. He is only ever advancing. Mm-hmm. And then he's, he's baiting everybody else around. Yeah. And it works. It's amazing. And John Wayne does it too in The Quiet Man. And he and does then he it. he does the cartoon it, version. In the cartoon version in McClintock. McClintock. Yeah. But it's the same thing. And. Well, that's what makes his interactions with that uh, Liz Embry character so interesting is when they cross paths, she's actually the only one he respects as exactly an equal. Exactly right, yeah. Because, yeah. because she's the same stalwart hunter on the distaff end. Yeah, Feminine she's... <laughs> and, and, and her hunting That's is exactly all just right. like... That's right? exactly I'm, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let yeah. Jimmy Stewart... That is, that is a great point. She's just going to let yeah. Jimmy Stewart bumble and do his thing. And yeah, eventually he'll, right. he'll, have to, he'll have to come to me. They have that one great moment of recognition, like Carrie Grant's like, oh, you, you understand what I'm doing. Why don't you just marry him? She's like, well, he needs time and oh. a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's she, pretty great. That's the line, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she, because she's a woman, is playing the long game where Cary Grant has no intention of playing the long well, game. Cary Grant has played the long he game, has, actually. But this, yes, is, but this is not this is not that, right? This is this is the bullet being see. fired out of the gun right. and it is just going straight That's into right. Catherine Hepburn's forehead by the end of this <laughs> weekend. Like <laughs> and, and, and you see women play this game, the game of uh, that character what's her name who in taming L- of the shrew no no the tracy lord no the the liz embry liz embry yeah they play that game really successfully too if they're smart and and it can go very well mm-hmm. for them if a woman knows what she likes in a man and what she wants in a man it knows how to position herself for to be the woman that he has eyes for when he's ready mm-hmm I've seen that happen and I've seen it work and I've seen it work well. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that's something actually to, to look down on. No, there are no. people that spend their lives p- p- waiting for Jimmy Stewart to get the message and eventually in real life, sometimes it doesn't work out and you need to just be like, okay, well, Jimmy Stewart's a clueless adult and he's not going to get the message and he's more interested in Tracy Lord and he thinks he could win Tracy Lord. So have fun. Enjoy singleness. Yeah. Jimmy Stewart. Yep. And part of the genius of that approach in the case of Liz is at no point is she ever emasculating him, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She is positioning herself. She, she's ahead of him. Mm-hmm. She sees where it's going, but she, part of what she understands is that she actually can't go just marry him. Right. She has to position herself because he's still got to come alive, come awake to her and go for it. Well, and it makes so much psychological yeah. sense insofar as she's already had a disappointment in her life. She's got Joe's hardware or whatever yeah. in her background. Like she's obviously learned her lesson and she knows what she has to do now to get what she wants. And so she's very to the point, dry, and just kind of Machiavellian about it. Presumably <laughs> because she's got some disasters that She's pragmatic. Yeah. She's a realist. Right. Yeah. yeah. Austin writes these kinds of characters. Yeah. For good reason. Well, at the end of the movie when you know, Tracy Lord refuses Jimmy Stewart. And he's like, what? What? Why? Uh, uh, I, I don't understand. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, she says, Liz wouldn't like it. And then you see him go over and take Liz's hand with a kind of a confused look on his face. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> or at least maybe I kind of read that into the film, but I think that's what's happening. No, Jimmy Stewart's an idiot in this movie. I mean, yeah. I think 
which is great to let him play an idiot yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's the one person who thinks it's he's got everyone's number, and actually, pretty much everybody has his number, and he has no one's number yep. from the very beginning. He, d- he miscalculates Grant, he miscalculates Tracy Lord, and he never knows what he has in Liz. And yep. meanwhile, he's the one guy who goes around and criticizes everything and wants to badmouth the, the wealthy. And He's got his acerbic insight yeah, into all of it. Yeah, and into everything. <laughs> he's got, he's going to dial the phone and play a prank on the mom and everything. <laughs> That's a great. <laughs> That's just pretty funny. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the voice of doom. This is the voice of doom. I love how he says that. Man, early, I, I love me any era of Stuart, but early to mid Jimmy Stewart, I think is some of my favorite Jimmy Stewart. Well, you you see the, the natural comedic genius before it turned to shtick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll notice he's not doing a lot of the stuff in his movie, which I I love that stuff. I love Jimmy Stewart on Tonight Show reading Dog Named Bo. I think I said this on our episode about It's a Wonderful Life. I love the entire span of Jimmy Stewart's career, but he's not playing Jimmy Stewart here. He's just playing the character. Yeah. And that is a different kind of Stewart. Once he became iconic, he had to start playing himself. And that you see that happen with all kinds of, of actors and some of them em- embrace it with humility and joy and some resent it, but still embrace it while resenting it and some buck up against it. Well, let me talk a little bit. That's a great lead into Hepburn. Let me talk a little bit about her history because it's interesting. This was a movie that she used to reinvent herself and to salvage her career. And it was incredibly effective. And she was like, literally the theater owners got together. They would publish a list of box office poison people. It would go out in the trades and it wasn't like, we just don't like these people. It was like, these are the people that we as theater owners don't want to put their name on the marquee because people won't come and we won't make money. Hepburn made that list in 1980, uh, 1989, <laughs> in uh, 1938 or 1939. Huh. And she was independently wealthy enough to buy out her contract from RKO, I think it was, which a lot of people would have just been stuck in the contract. Mm-hmm. But she went, licked her wounds devised a comeback vehicle and this was the comeback vehicle and so let me back up and give a little bit more context Hepburn comes from Connecticut her dad I think is a urologist and her mom is a progressive women's liber of the time someone who is out there campaigning for suffrage votes for women votes for women and so hepburn grows up in this really liberal Cast off the shackles of yesterday yeah yeah that's, that's exactly who her mother is and hepburn goes along to rallies i mean hepburn really is exactly the character that she plays she is this pants wearing neurotic feminist progressive of the time a little bit different flavor than what we're used to now but hepburn was the most up-to-date flavor of her era and she came from progressive parents she loved her parents they taught her how to be who she was. She went to school. She got into drama. She came to Hollywood and she hit pretty big. She was in a movie that George Cukor, the director of this, directed called Bill of Divorcement and then an adaptation of Little Women where she played Joe Marsh and people really liked her. But then through the 30s, she does this series of important women's pictures and they all flop. I think there's one that's literally called A Woman Rebels. That's the name of the movie. It's about a woman who has a baby out of wedlock in like medieval Scotland or something like that and gets in trouble. And so she does all these important, self-important movies and the audience of the time just hate it. I mean, it's the same kind of reaction that people have to Brie Larson. People of any sense have to Brie Larson and Captain America. Like, we don't like this person. She's condescending. Mm -hmm. She's nasty. 
and she's condescending. She's nasty. And we just don't, we, we're, we're not digging this. Plus she's seen that way in her private life. She's, she's not good at giving interviews. She, she really is Tracy Lord. She's not somebody that reporters like. She's not somebody that gets along with people. She's uppity. And she does a bunch of the kinds of social justice SJW movies that somebody like that would do. And they flop. And she's box office poison. And the studios don't want, it, want to have anything to do with her. And so she, I think, very smartly engineers the perfect career comeback where she, then basically, she's just got a friend of her family to write a Broadway thing for her. And he wrote this play, Philadelphia Story. It was written for her. She performed the heck out of it on Broadway, did the tour. It became really popular. And then Hollywood have had to make the movie. Had to make the movie. They had to make it with her. And she got to dictate terms. She chose Grant. She chose Stuart. And what's so incredibly smart, you can actually find a quote where, where Hepburn said to somebody, people want to see me fall on my face because they think I'm too la-di-da or something. That's what she said, which is a wonderful Catherine Hepburn way of saying it. Yeah, they think that they think I'm too la di da or something. So (laughs) she doesn't really understand it. She doesn't think she's too la di da, but she's smart enough to realize that's exactly why people don't like me. They think I'm an uppity, you know what? And so the movie has to punish me for it. And it has to punish me in such a way that shows my vulnerabilities. That's what's going to make me likable. And so she engineers, with the help of this writer, a vehicle that does. Just that. And then she makes a career out of playing that character. And she's always going to get her pound of flesh. She's always going to exemplify some feminist ideal. Sometimes quite literally, you know, she'll be the woman in the newsroom in a a movie called Woman of the Year or Adam's Rib is a famous Battle of the Sexes movie where she kind of wins, but then she's smart enough to make it so she always never wins. Mm -hmm. And she's smart enough to always pit herself against strong male co-stars like Spencer Tracy or like Cary Grant in this, who or Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen is the other really famous one, who can not just hold their own, but in some way dominate her. She always knows- Conquer her. Conquer her. Yeah. You, she can be as strong as she wants to be so long as there's somebody there across from her who's just a little bit stronger. And so she can put to shame the whole demure feminine mystique of somebody like Grace Kelly so long as she's got a Bogart or a Cary Grant, whose whole line is to be the alpha of all alphas. Right. But there's only one. At least she can assert, no other man could conquer me. Yeah, like, nobody I, else. I'm basically nobody unconquerable. You, you have to be. You, you, you must be Cary Grant or you, you must be a god-like figure that can come in and just conquer That can me. only be written. Right. <laughs> exactly. And it's just, it's so smart. If Brie Larson... Did this right now? Yeah, I was just thinking of that. It, that would be such a, a a suave, awesome career move for her if she just figured out how to play vulnerable and how to find a male lead who could put her in her place a little bit, just at the very end of the movie. Just write her into write her into Thor. Yeah, and let have the whole movie be Thor is whatever over here, but he's on his journey back to the top because right. he's got something bigger ahead of him. Mm-hmm you know, and whatever you want to do with Jane Foster or whatever. And then boom, at the end of the movie, he, you remember that I like this one moment from Endgame? Yeah. Then Brie Larson shows up and he alphas that lesbian chick into his woman. Mm. That would change everything about 
Brie Larson's entire career. They will never do anything like that. No, 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 never. But they could. Like that's that's a moment that you could just it writes itself. I mean, Hepburn is remembered as he's one the of, one to do it. They've already set up that moment. That's why it popped into my head. Yeah. Like, who who would you do? It would yep. be him. The difference between we remember Catherine Hepburn as one of the greatest stars of the 20th century, and we don't even know her name, is the difference between Catherine Hepburn living in a time and being savvy enough and being feminine in her weird progressive way enough to realize, oh, I have to do that. Yep. I have to do that. People want to see me get conquered. They want to see me. They think I'm too la-di-da. And so I can't just be la-di-da in my movies. And I, I have think, to bleed a little. Yeah. And I think that's so smart and it is so appealing. Tracy Lords is insufferable except for that everybody kicks her through the entire movie. Her dad. They've all got her number. Cary Grant. And so she's like near tears a lot of the time and you feel really bad for this person that by you shouldn't feel bad for her. She's a one percenter. She rides horses all day. She does nothing. She makes life hell for the help. There's nothing likable about Tracy Lords, but when she's put on the defense, there's suddenly something very vulnerable and neurotic and kind of lovable about Tracy Lords. And Catherine Hepburn's not my favorite actress at all, specifically because her persona is so grating. Yeah. But I think given that persona, which her parents raised her to have. She really, she was really smart about playing to it. This is the only Catherine Hepburn movie I have seen. The first time I saw it, I did not like it even a little bit. But watching it this time, <laughs> I really liked it. And I liked her in it. I had not liked her before. Yeah, she's she's good. She's something. I mean, she has talent. I mean, maybe the only other piece of context I might want to give about Catherine Hepburn is you have to understand that accent. If people don't know, that's the mid-Atlantic accent and it's a fabrication. Yeah. Nobody actually speaks, speaks that, way. that way. The only person who arguably spoke that way for real is one Mr. Cary Grant because he was a cockney boy who came to America and worked his way up the vaudeville circuit. And his accent is a weird mix of cockney and accent. American. It's an incredibly weird, easy to parody, but hard to, to replicate or to place accent and so he actually does have an accent that's something between british and american but there's this weird thing called the mid-atlantic accent which was created basically by dialogue coaches you can see a little bit of this in like singing in the rain the, right. the silent the movie. movies the the movie star who's big and then has a terrible voice so you get that little card that pops up in the newspaper article in singing in the rain that diction coaches see new surge in popularity as hollywood transitions to mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's absolutely true. And, and the other thing that you have to remember is the recording technology, early sound capturing technology wasn't that great, which meant you really needed people to be as articulate yeah. as they possibly could. They needed to say their T's and they needed to pronounce their vowels and they needed to not slur things. Jimmy Stewart's part of his magnetism and part of what's so great about him is that he seems to have avoided that and just kept his, his Midwestern, which is a relative rarity at that time. It would start to change. But would have really played into his charm. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't imagine if 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 Stewart had to just do that weird accent, then could he even do it? Yeah. Uh. I mean, you see stars. Catherine Hepburn is definitely the most famous person. She didn't actually talk like that. There's a story of her when she was coming up in Broadway before she joined the movies. She got panned for a performance because she was slurring her dialogue and people didn't like it. And so she she ran to a coach and the coach taught her how to talk like Catherine Hepburn. And so that's a put on. Did she talk like that in her private life? I don't know. Probably. Certainly in interviews and stuff, she never is out of character as Catherine Hepburn, but it is a somewhat self-created character. She wasn't born with that accent. Now, some people 
it's kind of the nouveau riche of riche of the time would learn would go, would send their daughters to in the wake of Catherine Hepburn they'd send their daughters to finishing school and they'd learn to talk in that stupid mid-Atlantic accent but it's only because yeah and <laughs> some dialect coaches for the movies made up this weird cross of British and so the movies created reality <laughs> yeah no they really did as, <laughs> yeah, and, as and early as see it in, like one of the fun things about Mad Men is the way if you've ever seen it, not rec- not recommending it but if you've seen it do have certain characters that are from that upper crust and have been to finishing school or have had that addiction coaches so that they try to speak or maintain that mid-Atlantic accent. Mm-hmm. It's Pete in the mo- in, in that yeah, and his yeah. wife. Pete and, and his wife. Their exactly. circle. <laughs> yeah. So it's a class of people that it, throughout the course of the show speak in that mid-Atlantic that's amazing. Excellent. It's 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 an amazing little detail. It's part of what makes that show so fun. Yeah, huh. and it's this is one of the last times when anyone would have bothered to speak like that because with the hippies finally put the put the coffin nail in like that yeah. kind of la di da sensibility. La di da. Yeah, la di da, la di da. So Ben, you said you liked this. I, I guess we should take. I, I have more to say about all this stuff, but including Taming of the Shrew. But I guess we should take a step back and say like. Do you like this movie? You said you like this movie? I do, yeah. The first time I saw it, I just thought, everyone is here is horrible, and this story is gross, mm-hmm. which is true. Yeah. Um, it is gross. All the people are horrible, mm-hmm. and their society is decadent and corrupt. And why does Grant, if Grant were a better man, he would want a better woman than Tracy Lord. But watching it this time, I think, I don't know, it's like a, it's like a weird twisted fairy tale. Mm-hmm. That's about sex. Yeah, you have to you have to understand that it's about that and it's about nothing else. You're not really supposed to think too hard about what kind of people these actually are. It's no. about it's about what they no, represent no, no. to each other. It's about the attraction. It's about uh, like it, it, for the purposes of the yeah. movie, who cares what kind of a person that's right. Grant is for wanting to marry Hepburn. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. It's well, just about the fact that he wants to marry Hepburn. Yeah, and, and and so it has a bunch of stuff that the more you think about it, the more it's like, oh, yeah, that's related to the reality of being men and women and not our culture's fancies. It's kind of funny that it's, I don't know, old movies encode a lot of that stuff. They keep it, and we might not even recognize it. But when you watch it like that, you think, that's pretty, but there's some cool stuff to remember there about being a man and being a woman. So you like this movie as a primer on basic human sexuality. <laughs> Absolutely. If I were ever a part of a church plan, I would make sure that that was the first thing that. Wait, a minute, maybe I should talk this up for Jake. Actually, then we need to talk about your impending ordination <laughs> or lack thereof. <laughs> Not so impending ordination. Yeah, yeah. I, so it's it's a weird combination of like all that stuff is there, and it's fun to learn from and watch. While at the same time, this is gross. That's well, the same thing with Taming of the Shrew, though. If you want to yeah. set it in its historical precedent, like. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to that story besides that shrew. He sure doesn't need to be tamed, and I wonder whether he'll pull it off or not. Like we're we're not supposed to care that much about what kind of a person Petruchio or however you say his name is. It's just about is uh, well. is old Kate gonna kiss him? <laughs> the Gospel Coalition of it all, Nathan is. You know, Nathan, aren't you and I really a little like? Oh, obviously, we all like to starve our wives. <laughs> we all like to spank them. We all like to keep them in tow. But other than that, maybe. we're nothing like these characters. Maybe the Gospel Coalition would consider that a bridge too far. <laughs> I remember the first time I watched this movie, um, coming away on cloud nine and not caring about the how gross it was. That's no, just a lot of fun. Yeah, for two reasons. One, the fun of it all 
And I had never felt, I don't know that I had felt so validated and uh, that a movie had ever given me so much credit as an audience member. There's no way anybody makes that movie today for the simple reason that Hollywood knows or assumes you can't keep up with it. Mm-hmm. You can't keep up with that dialogue. You can't keep up. You're gonna, you're gonna be. Why spend the put the elbow grease into writing dialogue like that when ninety percent of the wit and the charm and the humor of it is going to be lost on people? Mm-hmm. And that's the way that they think. And can I just interject real quick here to say, by the way, the generosity of them writing dialogue like that in a time when they had no expectation of home video, so they th- thought maybe you'd see this movie once or twice in your life. Yeah, and they still. F- Full it up, you know, filled it up with stuff where you could watch it 20 times and not get everything. I, I sat I sat there watching this movie last night and I thought if I had pen and paper in my hand and tried to keep up with all of the little gems, I would just be right I would just be writing the entire time. Mm-hmm. Like and I would come with a notebook full of lines that we've all already forgotten because they were thrown away and and still outshined by things like the withering gaze of the god. Ah, there it is, the withering gaze mm-hmm. of the god. You've lost the stuff. Goddess. <laughs> All these little things that like there are so many of them, mm-hmm. so many of them, and they are it's they're, dense. Just, they're just thrown away. It's and you brought up one earlier. Is I'm here to uh, collect the body of Macaulay of Connor, Mister Macaulay Connor. Yeah. And then he says, can you use a typewriter? And she says, I don't know. Do you want to give me one or something? (laughs) (laughs) The color, the the well-rounded humanity that they give. It's really great. It really glows. It's Well, it's such, I love old movies. You hear the stories about being on a set with a modern star and, oh, that line is really great. I kind of think the hero should say that line. Matt Damon says, oh, I kind of think the Matt Damon character would probably say the good line here. But it's just so cool that Grant's willing to let everybody else have the punchlines and basically just be the calm in the storm, even though he's Carrie freaking Grant. And (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Stewart hiccups and Grant says, excuse me. (laughs) That's a great moment. I'm sorry. like all these little moments that just get thrown away that like. Oh, the Grant. Stuart, mono e mono. We'll talk about that. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's I mean, like, but like, awesome. there's so much of like a modern movie that would be like that one thing would be the funniest moment of the movie, and they would draw your attention to it. And it's just like, and it's not even in the, the top away, fifty. A throwaway, a yeah. throwaway, a throwaway. It's awesome. Yeah. No. I. Really this great. is when people are like, the the latest Marvel movie was just fun, and I'm like, why don't they hire some writers? This is what, fairly or unfairly, I'm thinking, which I realize it's unfair, but on the other hand, it's like, you're in a medium, you're working with the same materials where people did this. Can't you try a little bit? Like, I know there's only one Philadelphia story. It's one of 10 movies that are this awesome and dense and great stacked with, okay, yeah, Thor, the dark world doesn't need to be that. But when once you realize that somebody worked really hard and did that, doesn't it make you want to like work a little bit hard yourself just to, oh, we could rewrite that script one more time and we could throw a few more things in there. How hard did they have to work to build this, this the, machine? The amount of elbow grease yeah. that went into it. And here's the, here's the other part of it that is probably true or 
one of the factors you already said this was written for Broadway. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've had a Broadway run. We've had how much work went into punching up the script for Broadway? How many times was it edited or punched up in the process of its Broadway run? And then having reviewed it all. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a funny story about that, actually. The the producer, Joseph Mankiewicz, tasked the writer with, I, he said, I've got a recording of the Broadway, of, of, of a Broadway performance somewhere in the run. And I want you to listen to this recording. I want you to see where all the laughs are. And I want you to make sure we don't lose one laugh for the movie. And the screenwriter hated that. Donald Ogden Nash, I think his name was. And he, when he won the Academy Award for Philadelphia Story, got as up and- As well he should. As well he should have got up and said, I have no one to thank but myself. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like the kind of line that the person that helped write Philadelphia Story <laughs> would have. But he had to sit there. This is the, my, my larger point is just the dedication to their craft and the- Say what you will about an evil cigar chomping producer of the time. That guy was just like, we're going to put it in the elbow grease to make sure that every laugh that a Broadway audience gave is replicated in this movie. So you sit there, you see where the big laughs are, you see where the little laughs are, you see how much space we need to build in, the timing. We're going to engineer this baby. We're going to, it's going to be pristine. This is going to be a Steve Jobs era Apple product where there are no mistakes. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the virtue of being able to like, I mean, talk about a test audience. Yeah, like, yeah. This thing had been it, toned and tested, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, subjected to a Broadway run, and then pull the track and the laughs, the audience laughs, and then it double down on all of it. Like, yeah, and yeah. then make it better. And that's a testament to Hepburn, who toured with this thing. She had the virtues of a Tracy Lord type person too. She was willing to work hard and service of the things that she believed in and her career was on the line here. She, she yeah. knew this is, this is very, as I've, as I've already emphasized a number of times and will continue to do so. This is a very, very smart, very calculated move on her part. It's a comeback story. It's it's one of Hollywood's great comeback stories. She was box office poison and she completely reinvented herself as somebody that people, I mean, arguably the greatest female star of the 20th century. I don't know that I would, really? I, I wouldn't argue that. But people, lots of people will argue that. Well, they'll come back with a different unrelated Hepburn. Right. It mm -hmm. is. A, it, I don't think you win the argument, but it's at least arguable. Who else is is there? Marilyn Monroe. I mean, just in terms of iconography, there's five of them. Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. And Catherine Hepburn is definitely one of them. Her voice, her mannerisms. If the Looney Tunes are doing in the era their own their caricatures and having bunnies Could flash their Hepburn, teeth. Yep. Yeah. So... <laughs> A little bit more context that's probably useful for this movie. Jimmy Stewart's coming off of a really good run right now. It's interesting that he would play the third lead in the movie, but mm -hmm. but really great. He's coming off of You Can't Take It With You. I think within a three-year span, he's coming off of You Can't Take It With You. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and The Shop Around the Corner, which are three bona fide certified classics. classics. And then he's stepping into the arguably the leading male role in this movie, but also arguably the third lead, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah. It's just the dynamic is super interesting and that is part of what makes it so compelling. Well, it makes it compelling and it makes it actually suspenseful because the first time you watch this movie, if you're not familiar with it, you actually don't know whether she might not end up with Stuart. Like it's one uh, of the- my, my, my kids who were around when I started this movie just assumed that, uh, actually, you know, I had the title card up and they saw the description and they're like, oh, so 
Cary Grant is the is the fiance and George Bailey over there is the guy who's going to come in and right. steal her away. <laughs> he's the underdog. Obviously, yeah. he's the guy. Like, right. That that was their assumption. If this is like, a Disney musical yeah. and somebody's going to sing a I, "What I Want" song, it's it's Jimmy Stewart, not Cary Grant. Like Cary Grant's the one that, or Jimmy Stewart's the one that we're pulling for. He's the point of view character. Yeah, for the most part, like obviously it's him. I forgot that that was a thing that happened, but that was a thing that happened. That was just their their assumption. Just. Yeah, it really, I don't think you can name a romantic comedy that is better weighted in that way. You never actually think the girl might end up with the other guy. This is one of the few movies that I think successfully yeah. pulls it off. And it's yeah. by having three stars yep. that are... She'll end up with her nasty ex-husband. <laughs> You'll love it. <laughs> what? No, what? I won't. No. <laughs> nope. yep, the one I guy won't. she's not going to end up with is the hardworking, normal guy with some sense of moral something something, <laughs> something. Some, some moral compass the, the movie wants to tell you is a moral well the other thing that you can't discount is we bring george bailey to this movie i mean you just can't watch a jimmy stewart movie and not bring george not and specifically the last five minutes of george bailey's arc and yeah. and so right people yep. tend to impute more goodness into any jimmy stewart role than is there that is actually intended yeah or is there well it, and this is before that this is before that, but that's so not how it wouldn't have hit that way for them. But it's how it hits for us. Well, yeah. but you also see the the dark underbelly of George Bailey that we talked about in our episode is bitterness. You see, Stewart knows how to do that really well. <laughs> yeah, no, he plays a Serbic. If he was an Avengers, he'd be Robert Downey Jr. long before he'd be Chris Evans. I mean, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he plays an acerbic, right. sarcastic guy about as well as anybody. He just has a certain folksy Midwestern vibe to it. But I, I guess that's why, like. Captain America is Captain America in some sense, but really when we think like who represents America in the Marvel movies, well, Iron Man. I yeah, mean, obviously. Yeah. He represents everything that's good and everything that's bad about America and yeah. that's just fine. Yeah. So that's Stuart. Grant is at the peak of his powers right now. I guess everybody know you guys know what Grant, Terry Grant's real name was, right? I don't remember. Archibald Leach. Oh, yeah. Born Archibald Leach in Bristol, London. Bad parents, lower class, worked his way as a vaudeville performer in his teen years into America, and then just came up through the, the vaudeville circuits. And you want to talk about someone who completely invented themselves from scratch. It's a character that Gene Kelly plays in Singing in the Rain. Yeah, yeah, it is. Except for Cary Grant, actually, he's that guy. And that's, yeah, that's what I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that's just so much of what makes Cary Grant an interesting performer is that. I don't know. I mean, it's easy to read things. Once you know something like that, it's easy to read it back into things. But it's like, Cary Grant is never quite who he pretends to be in his movies. He's always so debonair and charming mm -hmm. and everything. But there is a certain viciousness or pragmatism or just still sort of observing intelligence that even in sillier roles, you can see like there's, there's, the, Cary, there's the character that he's playing, but then there's the guy that's kind of in there processing everything on a different level, kind of watching and is what makes Cary Grant so compelling as a performer, I think. And his best roles like this one or like Notorious or like North some of the Hitchcocks. Yeah, they, they play with that energy in interesting ways. Like Cary Grant actually is, he is a self-invented character. And he sort of brings more, he feels like more of a man of a people than that stupid, the antagonist character in this, whatever his name is. Kittredge. Kittredge. Yeah. yeah. Ever could. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that, part of that is, of course, because the movie's just weighing it that way and writing it that way. But part right. of it's because the guy that played Kittredge, no doubt, comes from more class than the right. real 
Cary Grant. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Cary Grant, like he really does bring a Cockney swagger or I don't, I don't know exactly how to even articulate it, but it's like Cary Grant's a dangerous person. Yeah. Yeah. He brings a feeling of ambiguity. Yeah, he's funny, but wait a minute. What's he really thinking? No, I know what he's thinking. He's, he's a nice. No, wait a minute. You just always ask the question. Yeah, you never really know where you stand with Cary Grant. Yeah. And until the, it's too late or something. Until it's too late. <laughs> and the best of the best of his movies, this being I think one of his best performances, actually lean into that instead of Well, this is where so you watch you watch something like North by Northwest. Right. And you say and you can say things like, Oh, I know who George Clooney wants to be mm-hmm. and model his career after. And then you watch the Philadelphia story and you say, Oh, George Clooney's great at pretending to be Cary Grant, mm-hmm. but he could never be Cary Grant. You have to be born Cary Grant to be Cary Grant, which yeah. means actually you have to be born Archibald Leach to be Cary Grant. Exactly. There is that edge to Cary Grant. That Always. For for as great as a Cary Grant wannabe knockoff, a successful Cary Grant wannabe knockoff as George Clooney is, I don't, I don't care where he comes from. He cannot. He, he cannot bring to a movie what Cary Grant brought to Philadelphia's story. Right. Well, that's part of his uh, alpha appeal, but it re- it's like it's like having a con man. I don't know. Yeah. Play your leading role. Because I just thought of when Yeah, you were so talking. the best that you can do is you can, you can make George Clooney play an actual con man. Yes. Right? Yeah. And then if he's playing an actual con man, then maybe he can, he can touch it just a little bit. But he can't play, he can't be the con man who's playing Something else. Something else. Not yeah. in the same way. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like what Eva Green's character says to Daniel Craig in the first James Bond adventure, the Casino Royale thing. She says, like, you wear that suit with disdain or something like that. Yeah. Cary Grant is someone who has all the trappings of a gentleman of leisure and, and played that part very well across decades. Well, I, I, it's in, I'm glad that you went to Bond because Bond was in the back of my mind too. Hmm. Both Daniel Craig's Bond and Sean, uh, Connery. Sean Connery's Bond. That same, and, and it is that line, you wear that suit with such disdain. Cary Grant embodies that. Yeah. And it makes even a light comic role like North by Northwest really land because when he has to do the hero stuff, when he has to run from the plane, when he has to save Eva Marie Saint, when he has to do these things, there's just a steel in his eyes or something, some indefinable quality that's like, this guy's a man and this guy's lived life. And you can't buy that and you can't He may be effortlessly, be effortlessly stylish and cool, but also he's something else, something, right. something otherly. Yeah. Right. And so even when he's playing a guy that just bumbles into a Hitchcockian adventure, he belongs there better than a lot of people would if they were playing a more stalwart sort of on the surface of it role. Yeah, and that's and that's that's part of somebody like Sean Connery's success as well. Similar kind of backstory mm-hmm. yeah. that he brings. He was a military man. He was a nobody. He worked his way from the ground up. Like he had nothing. And then you put him in the role of James Bond. Yeah. He has the insouciance the impudence to pull it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's got he's got both the sort of street savvy and the impudence and the yeah. you know that like <laughs> uh, the, the 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 charm of the of the street rat who's had to charm his way through life and just the straight up nerve and guts to really go for it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I keep using words like scary in in relation to Cary Grant's performance in this because. 
there is something that is just so brutalizing <laughs> yeah. about how aggressive he is. I know Catherine Hepburn's tough and all that, but she's a pretty vulnerable woman ultimately in this story as it's yeah. set up. And it actually makes you have a little sympathy for the spanking scene in McClintock or something like that, because that actually turns it into a cartoon. It makes a joke. of It, it. makes a joke mm-hmm. of it and it relieves the pressure yeah. or, or dragging her across the Ireland and a quiet man. It's like, Oh, okay. Here's this is- a stick to be. Th- Thanks. Yeah. Everybody loves those scenes. Women love those scenes. And it's because it's kind of cathartic and we can all laugh. And, we, and as men, we can say, Oh, I wish it was that easy. And yeah. as women, we can secretly say, oh, well, I wish that was that easy. Yeah. But this is not that. This is a much more down-to-earth adult version of the same kind of thing. And it doesn't let you off the hook with a little bit of catharsis. I mean, it does in the last five minutes. But man, you have to put up with just this shark-like character driving towards Hepburn the whole time. And I was thrown off by that. So my reaction, so I loved this movie the first time I saw it for similar reasons to Jake. It's just such a peerless example of craftsmanship that you kind of have to at least respect it, even if it's not Mm -hmm. your thing. Yeah. And I think the second time I watched that movie after The Glow, we probably both had the same reaction. Came down a little bit. Yeah. And just sort of like, well, I I never need to see this movie again. Yeah. I don't actually like these people. Yeah. And there's not actually a lot to this story once you, once you scrub away the surface level. There's only one thing, which we've said multiple times now, which is just like pure sexual energy. Yep. And so what is there? What what nutrition is there? Yeah. And what exactly is it feeding in me? Yeah. Is it good? Yeah. And I think, so I have two theories about that. Mm, there are things that I think that are problematic about this movie in its treatment of women and in its whole mm-hmm. ethical vibe. Uncle Willie's a problem. Obviously. But the dad is more of a problem. And the dad's a huge problem. The dad yeah. is like amazing. Well, let me say this. I think a lot of people, they look back on a movie like this and they're like, actually, we were just doing a Sound of Sanity episode where we talked about something similar. Everything that Christians clean up, mm-hmm. we get the blame for. Yep. So like we cleaned up slavery. We, we helped obliterate it from the Western world. And now it's all white Our patriarchal fault. Christians' fault for being slavers. Similarly speaking... The reason that this movie has these cringy sex things in it, you know, dad is allowed to philander and Catherine Hepburn needs to get on board. She needs to stop being so cold and she needs to understand that, well, dad just. It's kind of her fault. Yeah. <laughs> the, right. It's kind of her fault. In fact, yeah. I think, I mean, they, they really drive it home in a, a, just an obnoxious, you know, I think if I had a daughter who was happy to see me, then I wouldn't have to. Fl-. He basically just says that. People are going to say, oh, that's like the old conservative you know that's how people were before progressivism came along and saved us from that no progressivism that that is progressivism corrupting this movie yeah actually it's it's the Catherine hepburn brand of progressivism it's feminism mach one or whatever it was it's 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 a first wave second wave it's the feminism that says we all need to have a little bit more sexual license yep and because they hadn't lived through the swing in 60s and the aids epidemic and everything else their version of sexual license is uh, men get to play a little bit more. But that's Hepburn. Hepburn wants that. She's pushing for it. She's actively being salacious about it. Catherine Hepburn, known fornicator, one of the people that helped her bankroll this movie and take back control of her career, bought the rights to Philadelphia Story and and then sold it, turned around and sold it to Hollywood, was her boyfriend, Howard Hughes, famous. You know, you can watch that story in uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Scorsese picture the the aviator. aviator. They famously had a 
a big romance and Catherine Hepburn went through marriages and she was Spencer Tracy was her lover for several years, but then she would have the person that was actually her husband. Like she, if this movie was actually allowed to just be the conservative taming of the shrew story of Cary Grant showing Catherine Hepburn, what's up? I don't think it would feel half as cringy as it does because they, they were forced to introduce what at the time would have been very liberal progressive ideals of this kind of sexual license that uncle Willie's allowed to take that, and it's supposed to be funny. Well, and even the fact that what they plots like this even had to be devised around the fact that you couldn't show adultery on screen Mm -hmm. at the time. Right. So you have these like plots that, involved divorcing and remarriage and so because you couldn't have adultery and wife swapping type things be written in so you had to write a divorce into yeah the most obvious way to tell the same story is grant and hepburn are married but their marriage is on the rocks she starts fooling around with Stuart or kittredge or whoever and then carrie grant wins her back that's that's like the most that's simple the story a to that B. they actually wanted to t- like if you if you if you took away the hollywood restrictions imposed by christians mm-hmm. <laughs> that you can't depict adultery on screen that's how they would have written this movie to begin with right the whole reason we have a divorce in the middle of it as the plot point is because you you're living in a world in which it's not cool to put straight up adultery on screen so you have to be salacious in every other possible way that you can and they're insanely creative about it right but then we're going to have these high cringe scenes where hepburn puts on uncle willie's favorite perfume and just yeah. to, just to drive him crazy because he's a dirty old man and it's ha ha, isn't that funny? And it's super cringe. And some woke person now will be like, well, I sure am glad that now we're woke and we don't have that kind of stuff in movies. That's Hepburn being woke. That's why that's in the movie. Yeah. The conservative audience for the movie didn't want that stuff, actually. Yeah. Didn't, didn't, weren't used to putting up with Uncle Willie in their lives and didn't think it was funny. But Hepburn's like, ha ha, let's make a joke out of sexual license. Let's, let's imply it as heavily as possible with all of these characters. And let's show the women being okay with it. And let's show the women being okay with it. That's just their version of... Let's wink and nod at it. Of the same thing. So, yeah, we, we it's, it's, it's just such a bait and switch. We get the blame for everything that's cringeworthy about this movie, actually. If you guys had your way, then Uncle Willie would be allowed to do what he wants and Dad would be allowed to do what he wants. No. And we'd be living in the Handmaid's Tale. And we'd be, yeah. Actually, we were restraining the Uncle Willies and the Dads for thousands of years. And then Catherine Hepburn came along and said... Wouldn't it be funny if we let them loose, let them loose. And that stuff is cringe and there's no getting around it. The whole dad plot, although they do throw some, maybe just a line for the production code where he says, I didn't actually do anything. One line. Mm-hmm. And then the whole rest of the movie, he's like, I, de- I definitely did something. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yeah, and, right. and my that's wife right. should totally be okay with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think I actually, I interpreted that as I didn't do anything, meaning I didn't do anything wrong. So what if I philandered? Yeah. Which you, which you could interpret if you want. I, mean, I, th- I think it's intentionally purposeful ambiguity in there yeah but they i think they probably also wanted to just throw something to the production code (laughs) so that's one thing i would say about the value or the nutrition of this movie insofar as it lacks a certain something insofar as it has certain poisonous things blame them not us please not the christians not the right Uh, not to be a left right kind of a guy but you know Catherine hepburn was nothing if not a leftist of her time and the result of that is this movie is dumber than it should be but to speak more broadly about the nutritional value of this movie me and jake had a conversation about this movie earlier on where i think we were just processing the fact that we like these kinds of stories on a certain level and 
I feel bad. We've talked about these kinds of stories before, maybe on the bookening, Sound of Sanity. I don't remember where. But I always feel bad saying that I like a Taming of the Shrew kind of a story. Because I just think, well, that's going to make it sound like Nathan's just a weak man who needs to see stories of women being put down or something like that. Emma is a place where I think over the years we've probably processed this thing. Yeah. Like, why do we like seeing Emma learn a lesson from Mr. Knightley so much? We all agree that's the best scene in all of Jane Austen and her repentance is really moving, all that kind of stuff. Taming of the true stories are attractive and i've never wanted to litigate you guys' favorite word that i like to use you're yeah. always telling me use this word more if you can yeah. get it we've been waiting all day yeah we've been yeah, waiting I've all been day disappointed so yeah, far. Yeah, yeah, so yeah we were about to litigate that with you actually. Yeah, yeah yeah well um I, I don't know that i've ever really wanted to litigate it because i was afraid i wouldn't like what i found but fellas i litigated it we litigated we litigated it, it and i actually liked like what, what we found, found. Yeah. And, and so you might and so that's what, what i was saying earlier right it has something it has something and what it has is, I mean, what I, what, I, what I said to Jake when we were talking about this is, it's so sad that these movies aren't in the cultural... You can't, you can't do them. You can't do them anymore. They used to do a couple movies like this every year. And, and that's about how many I need. I, I need a good taming of the shrew story every once in a while. Because the same way that a young boy needs a story about a hero who goes and does something and accomplishes a great thing so that we can all think that maybe we could go accomplish great things. You know, we need Star Wars so we can learn to fight evil. One of the stories that Hollywood used to tell all the time and TV and movies and books and everything was The Taming of the Shrew. And it's not because every woman is a shrew, but it's because every woman tests her man. And every man needs to learn to stand up to those tests and prove himself the kind of man who is worthy of being vulnerable with. Yeah. Right. And we like Because if he can stand up to her, then he can stand up to the threats to her. But if he can't stand up to her, then she has to protect herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really that simple. She wants a man who can protect her and who can therefore protect her from herself. So she's going to throw up barriers and tests and he, he got to be able to withstand her. Yeah. So I almost want to say, if someone came at me with, you just want taming of the shrew stories because you're weak and insecure. My answer is Yes. I'm weak and insecure. So is every man. We all need stories that tell us if you pit your will against your woman's will and you win, she's actually going to love you for it. That just needs to be part of the meta narrative. Yeah. That, that's just floating out there that we kind of learn again. As, and it, again. as it always was. As it always yeah. was. This movie is like a form of hyperbole. Oh, you want to see that story? Well, here's the dude. <laughs> well, right. I mean, you, you know. Yeah, I mean, superpower it's everybody, archetypal. right? You superpower them. You can elevate... Hepburn's level of shrewness mm-hmm. so long as you can cast a superhero opposite her. Right. Mm-hmm. Cary Grant is a god among men. He's 10 feet t- high. We're used to seeing him on the screen that way. Yeah. And so is John Wayne. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But when women in real life start to imitate Hepburn's level of shrewness, mm-hmm. they make themselves insanely unattractive. Right. Because no man is 10 foot tall in Cary Grant or John Wayne. And... If we spank them, we go to jail. <laughs> and, and, and the women that try to elevate their level of shrewdness to this level, they're not worth it. They're that's not who they are. Like yeah, Tracy Lords is not worth it. That's yeah, right. yeah, they're not worth it. But in and a, so you create this weird kind of yeah tension di- di- dynamic thing. But the the morality play of it all, the hyperbolic, exaggerated mm-hmm. telling of that story, it's instructive and it's helpful because it is a. Right. 
an archetypal reflection on just men and women. Right. And it's right there in, you know, yeah. not to be all gospel coalition-y yep. about it, but it's right there in Genesis 3, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Every woman wants to dominate her husband. Every woman needs her husband to not allow himself to be dominated. We've all had Philadelphia story level moments in our life. Luckily, by God's grace, none of us are actually married to Tracy Lord and have to make ourselves into Cary Grant to win, but we all relate to the feeling of this thing. Yep. Men need to be told, it's okay. You can stand up to her and she'll still love you. Women need to be told, it's okay. You can rest secure in the love of a person who's willing to pursue you past the times when you're a brat. Yep. We really just need this story to be a part of our cultural consciousness. And it's funny, you know, I was thinking about in preparation for this, how recently it has been just in silly ways. Like die hard is this formula, yep. right? Like John yep. Wayne or uh, John Wayne, <laughs> Bruce Willis has a lot of rough edges. He's not the person that Mrs. McLean or was expecting when she got married. So now she's going to divorce him, but then the bad guys are going to show up and tear Nakomi Plaza to hell. And she's going to realize, Hey, wait a second. It's pretty great to actually the rough edges that made me kind of not like John McClane are the very things that protect me when the terrorists show up, when the terrorists show up and she's going to be wearing a watch, which is the symbol of her independence. And then Hans Gruber, the rat is going to (laughs) be holding onto the watch and our hero, our stalwart manly hero is going to take that watch off. And in so doing, uh, shed the bad guy and send him plumbing to his death. So along with with her wifely independence. That's right. 10 Things I Hate About You, literally a retelling of uh, The Taming of the Shrew in as silly form as you could want. Mm -hmm. But it works. Heath Ledger's going to tame that Julia Stiles. Yep. Yep. And, And people, I mean, Julia Stiles is a great example of someone who, if she plays in a movie where she's not getting tamed, not very likable. Yep. Gets tamed. Kind of likable. Yep. I mean, sorry. That's, that's that's just the way it is. I'm not sorry. That is the way it is. Jurassic World tried to do this trope <laughs> in the dopiest way possible and everybody hated it for it. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the most recent movie that was like, that for some ridiculous reason thought that it could still do this and that it could cast Chris Pratt in the role of the alpha. And a miscalculation <laughs> Chris, on so many different levels. Chris Pratt as alpha is... The- Oh, it's so bad. It's dumb. Yeah. It's Chris, so dumb. Chris pa- Pratt as man child works just fine. Chris Pratt as alpha is silly. Silly. But that's an example of a movie where they actually did, I mean, in their dumb way with Chris Pratt, they did actually try to follow that formula and everybody was just like, no, thanks. Yeah. We don't like this formula. You can tame raptors, but can you tame the heart of a woman? Right. And it turns out he can tame both. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is good, good classic Hollywood storytelling. But so, yeah, I just think... We need Taming of the True Stories, and they're fun, and they're cathartic. It gives you a chance to watch a movie like that with your wife, and she knows you're not Cary Grant, and you know she's not Catherine Hepburn, but you both see a few things reflected, and it's a little cathartic, and you laugh, and she feels better precisely because you're not quite Cary Grant, and you feel better precisely because even though she can be a little annoying, she's not actually Catherine. You know, it, these, are, these are very useful stories to tell. They have their place. It's dumb that they're not a part of just our regular sort of, oh, it's another episode of Gunsmoke, and and this week we're doing one of those. Yeah. You know, that's how it used to be, and now you can't do one of those, so. Or if you do, you have to disguise it so much or find some kind of an ironic Yeah, I was actually trying to run through in my mind where and how uh, uh, 
that kind of story is disguised, if I could find one. Well, I was thinking of Iron Man's fiance, whatever. Gwyneth They actually marry at some point, yeah. Pepper Potts. Pepper Potts. I, I was trying to think about Tony doing that, but they don't really play Tony and Pepper that way. Well, he, it's like they start to do it at the end of Iron Man 3, and then they undercut it. She saves the day by becoming weaponized, and then he blows up all his weapons kind of in submission to her desire to see him not have weapons. That's actually what how Iron Man 3 ends. Yeah, but then they just forgot about that when they... Oh, were, of course. Yeah. Well, you had to. He's... They they play with that. It's an empty uh, they gesture. play with it in the dynamic between uh, Thor and Tessa Thompson, but undercut it because she won't. Yeah, she, like the whole joke is the whole joke is she's she's not that person, and neither is he. Yeah, but they definitely like set it up. They set the table with that mm-hmm. just to undercut it. Well, the other thing that's unfortunate about that is while your marriage, once you're married, may or may not to a certain degree be defined by these kinds of realities your courtship is always defined by these kinds of realities and by her testing the woman tests and the man passes or he doesn't and so it's hard to actually tell a complete tony pepper arc without doing some of these tropes and their solution is eh, we'll just skip it yep actually it's what romance actually doesn't at work without authority and submission in a godly way. And so there's just the solution for a lot of the world, the Disney corporations stuff in particular is we're just not going to have romance. Yeah. Because there's, it is a shame. We're no, yeah. It doesn't matter who Ray wants to be with and who's worthy of her because we're just not going to do that. Yep. Actually. And that's too bad. So yay. Now we, it's not only that we don't have this kind of romance. That's the, again, the potency of, this movie is sexual tension. Well, we don't have sexual tension. We have go from zero sex to sex mm-hmm. without sexual tension, which is to say without romance. Right. Right. So, yeah, it's dumb. Yep. Thanks, Philadelphia Story, for not being dumb like that. But just being dumb in a dozen other perverse ways. Yeah. yeah thank you. <laughs> well, sometimes it's refreshing to get some perversity that's from a different era. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's a better way to articulate that I'm thought. I'm sure that there is. <laughs> <laughs> there must be. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any other context. Oh, George Cukor, immigrant, son of an immigrant Jewish parents, gay, open secret in Hollywood. I don't know if you can imagine that the director of this movie is no. gay. Famous for Gaslight, the movie from whence we get the term gaslighting. Famous for My Fair Lady. I don't know if you could imagine that the director of My Fair Lady would have any gay sensibilities. I had made a subconscious connection to this movie and My Fair Lady and couldn't figure out why or how to draw it out or mention it earlier in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, interesting. Well, it's two Hepburns and George Cukor, who who was famous. But they're not related. They're not related, no, no. But they're both Broadway smashes that were shepherded along uh, yeah, by I guess that was gay men. And he was famous as a woman's director. He was really sensitive to someone like Catherine Hepburn and to getting the best out of her and women really liked to work with him. I think he directed eight Hepburn movies and many of her classics that people remember. Holiday actually is a wonderful Cary Grant Catherine Hepburn movie that came before this during her box office poison period that I really, really like. It's a slightly more sanctimonious Hepburn role, but the movie makes it work and it's fun. So George Cukor, just an elegant gay director of these kinds of things almost 
did Gone with the Wind, but it got taken away from him. He was going too slow, and he's like one of three directors on Gone with the Wind. But precisely because he dropped out of Gone with the Wind, he got to do Philadelphia Story, which is, along with My Fair Lady, probably his claim to the history books. I'm trying to think if there's any other context that would be useful before we talk through this bad boy. I mean, I guess everybody knows about the scandal sheets. That was a real thing. The kind of newspaper that Jimmy Stewart is working for was was very much a real thing and very much a talking point in that era. These society gossip magazines that would print all the society gossip and they got more salacious and more salacious over the years until finally they became National Enquirer and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of who Jimmy Stewart's working for. And then there were some high profile cases where there was it was either proved or people speculated that they were blackmailing wealthy people into giving them a scoop hmm. so that they wouldn't actually spill the beans on the wealthy people's debauched lives. And so it's a very topical story that people would have recognized all the whole dynamic. There's some like trenchant social commentary and Jimmy Stewart's employment and how he feels about it and that is i guess we can read it as tmz or something like that but it probably doesn't mean that much to us but it would have meant a lot to people back then let's see okay i think the only thing that remains for us to do is to talk through this movie real quick so you got that opening scene she breaks his golf clubs he shoves her down Mm -hmm. pretty intense Yep. Pretty intense. That scene, I believe, was not in the Broadway play, but Hepburn advocated for that scene. That's actually where the quote comes from. People want to see me fall on my face. They think I'm too la-di-da. She's like, I'm coming back to Hollywood after a couple of years. Everybody hated me. How can I just instantly wipe that all away? Hmm. Let's have Cary Grant do what every male audience member and most of the female ones have wanted to do to me now for 10 years of Brie Larson style condescending crap. Let me be a sanctimonious, you know what, march the man out of the house. Break his favorite golf club. Break his favorite golf club and then let him, let me know exactly. Yep. And then uh, let's bring it up again and again throughout the movie. Yeah, that's I mean, super smart. Did he really soccer? Yeah. Did he really soccer? And the movie leaves it as an open question as to whether there was anything beyond that one moment. So yeah, that's just Hepburn being... Super, super savvy. I don't know. It's interesting to me to try and figure out whether Catherine Hepburn, there's like a whole brand of feminists, especially from that era, where you get the impression they wanted to be able to spout off and say everything, but they would have been really disappointed if the men had actually ever capitulated. I keep thinking of this G.K. Chesterton riff in what's it called? The World We Made, uh, The World As It Should Be. What's that book called? What's Wrong With The World? What's Wrong With The World? Yeah. He talks about how men always told women that it was so important that they had to go to work and work was so awesome and it's so important and men are so important because they had to go to work. And then suddenly women were so dumb that they believed us and decided they had to be in the workforce too. And it's like, and and then we, and men didn't know what to do. Like, Oh no, 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 no. This is just the game that we play. We say like, we, I have to go to work, honey. It's important. (laughs) That's why you respect me and cook my dinner because I have to go to work. And then the women are like, we want to go to work too. And it's like, what? No, <laughs> you moron. You don't want to go to work. <laughs> it's not that great. <laughs> I was kidding. <laughs> I always wonder whether in the reverse sense, someone like Catherine Hepburn doesn't have that kind of feeling about her feminism. Like I want to be able to spout off and be a brat and all that stuff, but I actually 
I actually only want to do it. But like, I'd be disappointed if I wasn't actually put in my place. Like, I understand we're both playing a game. My part of the game is to make a nuisance of myself and your part of the game, Mr. Man, is to put me in my place and that's how the world works. And so I'm going to spout all these, the, the, these feminist ideals because I'm standing up for my sex. But obviously your job is to make sure I don't actually get away with it in the end. There is that brand of actual human being. And I don't know whether Catherine Hepburn, I think Maureen O'Hara was definitely that kind of person. If you read about her and what she thought about mm-hmm. the sex politics of the John Wayne movies, I actually remember a story where John Wayne would always tell Maureen O'Hara, which is kind of funny given the movies that they did. He, like, Maureen, what, what are you doing here? You should be at home with your husband and your kids. Like, why are you on this movie set? Why did you take the job? You shouldn't. Are you serious? Yeah. John Wayne would tell her this That's all the time. I think actually, I forget where it is. It's either after the quit. I think it's after McClintock. I think John Wayne said that so much through McClintock that Maureen O'Hara finally said, okay. And then she retired for 20 years. She said they were, they, she, until her husband died. And she said they were the best 20 years of her life. And she did, she, did, she did actually just go home. That's amazing. So, <laughs> and she wrote about that later. Wow, that makes and, me like John Wayne a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. It's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> Talk about another guy with an awesome actual name. Yeah, what is it? It's Marion. Uh, Marion. Marion something. Yeah. Marion Robert Morrison. Marion Robert Morrison. That's I just right. saw Robert Morrison. I was like, what? Marion Robert Morrison. So anyway, I don't know. I, all that to say, it's kind of fun to speculate how much Catherine Hepburn. She is such a specific mid-century breed of American female. It's fun to speculate how truly progressive. Like, would, would Catherine Hepburn be horrified if you transported her today and she saw what happened with all of her little feminist ideals? Or would she like it? And I, it's, we'll never know. It's an open question, but it wouldn't shock me if she would have been pretty horrified by it. Like, if you time traveled her, but if you put her today. If you let her just, yeah, if you just brought her consciousness into. She'd be Brie Larson. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But if you time traveled her, it wouldn't shock me if she was like, oh no, this wasn't what we were trying. Like what? Uh, you men all took me seriously with this crap? Like, yeah. come on. So yeah, you got the shoving scene and then you got the setup with the i don't know what do you guys think about that kid sister where would you rate her as far as spunky kids and in movies she's one of the best spunky Uh, spunky kids in movies are always bad and yeah she's she's pretty okay i think of all the spunky kids in movies like i hate this i hate this type of kid i'm with you jake i'm always just like go to your room yeah but this one's the best like this, this actress is really good at mm-hmm. not, maybe it's because everybody else is so bratty in the entire movie. She's, she's, she actually doesn't stand out for her brattiness. Well, the the way she's written is as someone who understands her place and is going to be bratty within certain lines. Right. And that's not realistic, but <laughs> it's a fun character. Yeah, no, it works for, yeah. I don't know. These old movies always seem to only have those two types. You have like the kid that's sort of wise and knowing like this kid. And then you have like the adorable Shirley Temple kind Angelic. of just gross makes you want to throw up kind of kid. So I guess I'll take a spunky kid over that maybe, yeah. but yeah, kids in movies suck. Like, can we just talk about uh, Catherine Hepburn's outfits in this movie for a second? She looks like a clown. She's got like those big buttons and shoulder pads and it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't mind it. I don't mind it. Product of the time. It's not a, 
thing that strikes me as particularly garish or anything like that. I, you be the judge listener. Dial in right now. 1-800-Jake-and-Ben-are-wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> tell us your opinion on Catherine Hepburn's garish cl- clown-like outfits. Please do. We have the introduction of Uncle Willie, one of the great characters in cinematic history. Yeah, we introduce him with some perfume and... Pinching? Pinching action? (laughs) (laughs) It is striking to me how utterly sinister they play Uncle Willie. Like, I don't even know. I guess he's supposed to be funny. As the movie goes on, he's more and more just supposed to be funny. But the actor doesn't really do, doesn't really ham it up. He actually just kind of feels like Uncle Willie would feel. And it's really weird. Like, were they going for funny? I guess they I were think going they for were, funny. They, they were going for funny. They yeah. were like, oh, this is, you know, just Uncle Willie. You know what Uncle Willie's like. It's but funny. in other movies of this vintage, it'll be like, ah, oh, we all have our Uncle Willie and he's kind of cute. We played like an Edwin type hmm. actor. But this Uncle Willie, I don't know. I'm not a fan of Uncle Willie. I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about Uncle Willie, but. Let's see, then we have, they try and ride horses. Kittredge is bad. At riding horses. And it's funny. And it's funny. And it's funny. Was it funny, actually? No. No. I thought it was laying it on a little thick, I think. Yep. It did make me chuckle. <laughs> the fact that he was just so bad at <laughs> I mean, it is thick and obvious, but... I it just like, felt like such a... Oh, he's so Maybe lame. it's because his name is Sam and not Bessie. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. That's true. He's just, he's just such a bumbling idiot that you instantly are supposed to dislike him and that he has no hope. <laughs> yeah, but it kind of decreases the suspense. I don't it know. Does. Well, me. and she—I mean, the other thing is that she offers him. Oh yeah, from the from the outset, dirties up his his pants. You know, he's yeah, been, that's he's worked his whole life to get out of the coal mine to have clean pants, and that's unpleasant, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, what is else unpleasant. is unpleasant when she's acting all sweet with him. Yeah, that's really off-putting. Yeah. When she's like, oh, George, of course, all this and that and whatever you want, George. It's like, there'll be no reporters in my house. Don't you mean our house? Why, of course, I mean our house, dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, dear. <laughs> Kittredge is an idiot. <laughs> That's my hot take. In case you didn't know. <laughs> why do you think? Do you think that this movie just hates poor people? Like, why? What is the deal with making Kittredge Nouveau Reach? What, what is that choice? I didn't get it. Um, it's so counterintuitive to the choice. Like, today, Cary Grant's character would be Nouveau Riche, and then obviously uh, Stuart's a man of the people. Well, if you if you think it's in line with Catherine Hepburn wanting to vindicate herself, then you just show part of the movie is like flipping prejudice, like oh, this writer he's going to expose the rich, but really he's the jerk, mm-hmm. he's the cynic, and and all you idiots. Like I mean, I think I think you can probably make a pretty strong uh, meta case that as she's getting her real. The, the real place where she gets a pound of flesh is, in her mind, the the audience that's rejected her is just the George Kittredges of the world mm-hmm. who aren't worthy of her. Do so you think there actually is some real class snobbery that's built into the the text here? I think, mm. yeah, I think I think that she's like, you stupid plebes don't get who I am and who we are and how <laughs> sophisticated. You can't possibly. And I'm going to make you like me while kicking you around and sending you home mm-hmm. while I go home with Cary Grant. By making myself somebody who just wants to be loved, I will also make myself the untouchable goddess that you have to worship mm-hmm. and could never possibly be worthy of. Yeah, which, which is the subtext of the movie. Like, if Jimmy Stewart gets her, 
then maybe Jake Menzel, Nathan Alberson, and Ben Solzer could get her too. But you can't. No. No way. No way. There was never a chance. No way. And George Kittredge was just a a swing that proved that she was always still in love with Cary Grant. Yep. From the outset. Well, then we meet Jimmy Stewart and Ruth Hussey. And I think the movie really picks up. Their characters are so much fun and they're so much fun together. They're really great. And the whole dynamic of them going through the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Them going through the house. Well, yeah. Making the butler angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Making the butler suspicious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the phone that's, calls. That's some great physical comedy when Stuart's just going through the little knickknacks yeah. <laughs> and then it pans slowly <laughs> over. <laughs> and then he like does his little like, I'm going to open my coat and you know, yeah. bow my way out of here. I didn't take anything, you idiot. Like, well, again, as, alone. as I think you pointed out, Ben, Jimmy Stewart, such an angry person and plays <laughs> passive aggression and aggression aggression so well. <laughs> He's really good at that. Like he just hates the butler. <laughs> hey. All of you and everything you represent. Yeah. I really, really loved Ruth Hussey this time around. She's yeah. so great. She gets all the best lines, but she throws them away. I, I love a comedic performance where the actor never seems to be trying to tell you that they're funny. Yeah. And that's what she does. Like she she just seems to be content to just sit there and be hilarious. Be hilarious <laughs> in the background. And she knows like she's not gonna she can't really compete for the scene's attention with a Cary Grant, with a Catherine Hepburn, but... No, but if she plays feminine to the scene, Mm -hmm. then she can really adorn it and make it beautiful. And that's what she does. Yeah, and then you give her even just a simple line. He may have been a simple man that worked at a hardware store, but he was an absolute rat. (laughs) And she she knows how to ring (laughs) maximum comedy out of it. Just by looking like she's not trying... The, The... Parallel I thought of is Harold Ramis and Ghostbusters. Harold Ramis is my favorite and I think a lot of people's favorite of the Ghostbusters and it's because he just plays it really dry and really straight and where Dan Aykroyd wants you to love him and where, you know. Bill Murray wants to steal every scene that he's in. Yeah. And where Ernie Hudson's like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm the token black man (laughs) and I'm taking a big check. (laughs) (laughs) Harold Ramis just... He's, he plays it straight. He's terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. And, you know. <laughs> Sorry. Harold Her- Her- Ramis yeah, never seems like good. he's trying to get a laugh. And it makes you it makes you want to give him the laugh yeah. more than anyone else. And Ruth Hussey's the same way. Like, she just seems like she's there. She's observing everything. She's thinking about it. And she's finding it wanting. And she's saying it to herself. And everyone else is ignoring her. <laughs> <laughs> She's throwing it all away. Cary Grant shows up. He makes Catherine Hepburn takes those four steps back or whatever, just with his body. He is power move after power move. Yeah, and after Mm -hmm. Dorcas couldn't get on his horse and all that stuff, it's like, oh, okay. A real man has arrived. Here is the alpha. (laughs) I was wondering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that whole horse scene is the most ham-fisted. It's kind of lame. It's the only ham-fisted part of this movie. I think we could probably say, yeah. Well, we we should see if we can find as we go through it, scene by scene, anything that comes close to being as hamfisted. Well, as sort that. of some of the stuff. I guess you could argue some of the some of the cringy progressive stuff that we've argued is progressive, like Uncle Willie or the dad subplot. But even those, even the dad, but those scenes, are doing real work for for Hepburn for Hepburn's character. character. Yeah, that's the thing that makes the dad so frustrating. Is actually a lot of what he rings out of Hepburn is so great and some of the most vulnerable stuff, but then you can't quite get on board with it because the whole plot is yeah, but that's, um, immoral. That's part of the 
of the genius of the all the dead stuff in the first place is like it just it's a layer of complexity that brings color and does a whole lot of work and instead of feeling good about it you feel conflicted mm -hmm. and that's just part of the complexity of it all i guess is yeah hmm. neat tricks yep so grant shows up he's super aggressive it, it is I mean, I know I've said this a million times now, but it is just striking to me how aggressive Grant plays it. Like all of his dialogue to her is like, am I red? I mean, it's like pitched at that level. Mm -hmm. It's really intense. Yeah. It's like, it's not just, I'm not giving you an inch, but I'm, I'm taking ground. I'm taking ground with every moment. Like yep. it's, I, I cannot, the only Cary Grant performance that's close to being this nasty in its way is notorious, but that's a much more subdued kind of a, a movie and then we have the big comic scene that everybody loves where the girls come in and they're talking french and yeah all that kind of stuff which is pretty funny mm -hmm. yeah it's they really jack that up in high in high society oh, lame by how they it's just like it's just really like they're really selling it in in philadelphia story mm -hmm. and they're playing it for slapstick in high society in a way that it's just it doesn't work no, it, it, the way the comedy works there, it can't just be about Catherine Hepburn wants to act weird and she's weirding out everybody. It has to be wrung from the, it has to be drawn out of the character's actual psychologies. You have to believe that, it's easy to believe that this kid sister would come in and just be silly because she likes to screw with people, whatever. She's she's a kid, she thinks it's funny. Yeah. But you have to believe that Catherine Hepburn would really want to do that. Yep. And you have to buy it. And that's a pretty hard trick one of my least favorite forms of comedy is the zach Califanakis or sandler sort of i'm a weird off-putting person or will ferrell sometimes i'm a weird off-putting person and i'm just gonna act weird and off-putting and you're gonna feel weird you're and gonna be gaslighted into thinking it's hilarious yeah well you as an audience will but it's like the, the other character the straight man in the movie is like oh no i feel uncomfortable and this is weird and i feel off-put and that never works for me as well as if Adam Sandler's trying to be normal, but he's accidentally doing something weird or because of who he is. And so these kinds of scenes where Catherine Hepburn's like, I'm going to aggressively do something funny and I'm going to intentionally make these other characters feel weird. Uncomfortable. And, and uncomfortable. And then she comes in and she does it. That almost never works. I think it, I think it's striking that they, they, I think it's just because you understand it's, it's wrung out of Hepburn's psychology or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, so... I was watching it last night and I texted you, this movie is lightning in a bottle exactly at the point. That doesn't surprise me. Exactly at this point where they finished their little French charade. <laughs> smallpox, whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and then she's sitting down and she's just like, you know, the, that whole scene ends with, wait, were we interviewing her? Or was she interviewing us? Like mm -hmm. she puts yeah. them through the ringer. She's making them dance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that whole bit of how she just like throws them on their heels and is just, she's got the puppet strings. Mm -hmm. She's making them dance. She's just owning them. Right. That's just, that was at that point, I was like, yeah. Like all, it had been years since I'd seen the movie. We had had our discussion about it. All of all of our pre-discussion without me even having seen it, but just mm -hmm. going off of memory. And then coming back, it was like, oh yeah, man. Oh yeah, this, this is, movie is just we're on firing on all. fire. Yeah. It is just on fire. We're cooking with gas. Like everybody came to play. Yeah. And yeah, the, the screenwriters, the directors, 
Hepburn, Stewart, they, everybody came to play for this thing. It's just like, it's not missing anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really smart. It's really, I just think that scene's really easy to mess up. If that scene becomes, I mean, I, I've already said this, but just want to highlight it. If that scene becomes, I'm acting, I'm going to act funny because it's because I want to act funny for, for funniness sake so that yeah, the movie I, can have a funny part, then the scene is goes flat. But if it's I'm malicious and mad that these reporters are here and therefore I'm going to act funny and it's going to be funny, it's funny. Yeah. And listen, if you're if you're listening to this and you've got HBO Max, both High Society and Philadelphia Story are on uh, HBO Max. And you, if you pull up High Society on HBO Max, just go to this scene and watch this scene next to that scene mm-hmm. and you'll see, it, it'll tell you everything you need to know, hmm. both about why this movie is so great. And how easy it is to screw up every part, especially a scene like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a it's a high wire, wire act. Oh, this does actually though lead into the other part of the movie that I think is just a little ham fisted, which is Uncle Willie when when the dad and the uncle, Ha-ha. yeah, that thing. It's uncle Willie. Oh no, yeah, that is dumb. That just feels like an episode of Frasier or something. Like it, it, yeah. it, the the drawing room comedy of that is a little bit beneath this movie, I think. But <laughs> I liked. I partly. I would not have liked it if they tried to keep it going. Right. But, but, it is, it is well, nice that they kind of just throw it away. Yeah. Well, in sorry, I'm going to keep comparing this to High Society, but they actually so compared to High Society, like there's actually a logic to it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure, I couldn't remember for the life of me watching High Society what the logic of mm-hmm. pretending that Uncle Willie was dad. Mm-hmm. What that? What was the point? It just didn't connect and I didn't want it to. Right. But it's just obvious in this. Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, like we've got this whole other subplot about dad and the dancer. And so actually dad's here and actually dad is here with mom and mm-hmm. actually you don't know the first thing about us like well it also goes along with like well let's keep screwing with these reporters yeah yeah even the, exactly yeah so you're you're an apologist for this yeah thing. i i it didn't it didn't bother me things like that i it's, it's easy to screw them up yeah and make them just boring and dumb and like oh i hate this source of tension but i don't know the way that they did it the way that when her dad does come in it's like oh the way that everyone reacts. Mm-hmm. It's not like a sitcom kind of reaction exactly, especially with Katherine Hepburn. What, what is it she? It is, is she? too. It is too. It, it's Because you got mom that's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's set right. another place. Oh, another plate. Oh, another. Oh, that's another. right. That's right. Like, yeah. yeah. They, oh. they play that sitcom kind of yeah. comedy through. It, okay. it really is. But, when, right. but in a bad sitcom, what would happen is the other characters, for an inexplicable reason, just simply because we need the comedy to work would be super committed to this performance. What kind of works nicely here is no one really cares. They all know they kind of just have to do what Tracy says because she rules the roost, but they don't seem to be trying all that hard. So it doesn't strain credibility that much. Like the mom just doesn't, she's just zoned out. She doesn't care that much one way or another. She's not super committed to helping Tracy do her weird bit the way that (laughs) the side characters would be. And, some episode of Three's Company or some piece of garbage like that. Then we get the uh, slow down a little bit for the library scene. Dost thou have a washroom? Says <laughs> Jimmy Stewart to that weird. <laughs> well, so, what did she say? She did some kind of like. She's like Amish or something. Yeah. Or she, she had or... like a how can I help the kind of. That's right. Yeah, she's That's right. The, can thou, yeah, the, thou look over there or something. I don't yeah. know what she says. But yeah, yeah. It's funny. Yeah. And then we. I'm always, I think it it works, but we do slide into, 
oh, now Tracy Hepburn's really vulnerable and real. Always, it, it always catches me a little bit by surprise. It's quicker than like, I guess you need her to lock into Jimmy Stewart and to like him for the tension of who she's going to end up with. Yeah. And it plays, I mean, you may have to bring a little bit of your own logic to it, but it's, it's like, okay, I've got these jerk reporters here. Let me figure out who they are and how I can ring their bells. I'm going to go read this guy's, check out this guy's book. Oh, there's more to this guy than I thought. And that's where it helps that Stuart is likable and that we yeah. like him. And also, I think it's a effective use of tell, don't show. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, he's a great author. We can't really do much with this character to indicate that besides just tell you that that's true. But these short stories are poetry and they've moved me. Mm-hmm. And poetry. I think that they, I think that all your nasty, acerbic wits, just a tough guy shell for the sweet sincere softy that you really are yeah yeah good example of tell don't show but how much stuff can you show in one movie like right we needed a few cheats to get this story on the rails and going what are we going to do spend 15 minutes establishing jimmy stewart's inner beauty like yeah whatever uh, plus i'm not sure i really trust I, I know that tracy lord writes right likes the stories i'm not sure i trust that that actually means that <laughs> they're objectively any good let's see here they go for a walk they come back to the swimming pool we have a lot of the most famous they're a high priest to a virgin goddess and mm-hmm. yep. the citadel that must be taken naked on the roof all the now we're talking about the themes of the movie here and telling you about how things are gonna happen because these are the themes of the movie i'm not criticizing here i'm just yeah what's the spanish proverb that we got to repeat two or three times. That's actually the... the What is the Spanish proverb, actually? I yeah. don't remember at all. Oh, that's just, that story is based on a Spanish proverb. And then we repeat it like three times after that. It comes up again and again. Getting there? Internet's a little slow here. With the rich and mighty, always a little patience. Oh, uh, yes. yeah. I think Twitter could learn a little something from that line. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this movie is one of those. It's weird how an, a movie that's so dialogue heavy and so witty like this can just object, can just blatantly state what it's about. So much of this movie, like you said, Jake, is just trusting the audience and letting yeah. them put two and two together to make four. But then you can just say, "You'll never be a first class human or a first class woman until you've learned to have a literal regard for human frailty." You'll Catherine never, Hemp. you'll never be a first class human or a first class writer until you've learned to have a little respect for human. Fr- oh. Yeah, yeah, and which which then you get that creepy dad stuff uh, tying into that and muddying the waters. My human frailty is that I'm a you should have loved me, or I, and if it's your fault, I committed adultery. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does muddy the waters. I don't know if there's anything else that that seems right now. So I don't know if there's anything else we want to say about the dad or anything. But I think we no. we covered it pretty. We well. litigated it. We, we litigated it. Yeah. Oh, you know what we didn't talk about, which I hate. It's, it's, I wouldn't change it. it. It's it's so identified with this movie. And it, there, there's nothing I can say critically about why I hate it. I just, I just It just rubs me the wrong way. Yar. I know. <laughs> Shut up about yar. I never want to hear the word yar. <laughs> Sounds like a pirate uh, thing. She was yar. Yar. My, oh, I'll be yar for you. When she says that at the end, yeah. it's like, oh, Please, please don't be yar. <laughs> Carrie Grant should just drop her and <laughs> walk out. Wait, I wanted you until that moment right there. That right, like <laughs> no. I, I'm, I'm glad you're being a little bit more submissive, but 
uh, that's too far. <laughs> it it feels like their hoity-toity world, actually. You, you use that word. Yeah, it, it feels authentically like the kind of obnoxious self-narrative that a Tracy Lords would come up with for herself. Yeah. It's not the movie being obnoxious. It's Tracy Lords being obnoxious, but I can't stand it. I <laughs> I hate it. I hate Kath, or I, I hate Cary Grant's character for playing to it. It's obviously his trump card, but oh. You just need to see uh, Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly talk about that ship being Yar for a minute, and you can come back and be just fine. With it. <laughs> 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 I need to stop bringing that movie into this bit. Uh, oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, nothing like a 60-year-old laid-back dude and uh, ice 20, princess. 24-year-old. Demure ice princess. Yeah. Trying to convey... Uh, anyway, whatever. Yeah, that movie's dumb. Uh, I have seen that movie before. A I long, long time ago. I think I turned it off because I was just like, this is a zero. There is it's, nothing here for me. This is bad. This is bad. These songs aren't great. It's just nothing. Yeah, the fact that the ship is called True Love, also pretty lame, but whatever. I'll give it to the movie. <laughs> it can The movie can have a couple, I guess. Hey, by the way, the whole French little girl scene, she's playing a song that we reference in an upcoming episode of The Ville. A song that we reference in an upcoming... Lydia, Lydia, have you seen Lydia? Oh, yeah. Lydia the Tattooed Lady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the funniest parts when she goes and yeah. plays that scene. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty Actually, funny. Actually, yeah. It's great. <laughs> yeah. No, no. That's... It's such a beautiful little contrast to the French. Yeah. No, it's fun. <laughs> it's great. It's great. That, Sorry, that is... I just wanted to. So I think really, let's see. Uh, Uncle Willie's going to pinch a po- couple more bottoms. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, hilarious! Then we get to the big extended second act of the movie: the the drunk scene, the swimming pool stuff. Swimming pool stuff. Yeah. The I think the only place I want to dwell is that great act off between Stuart and Grant when Stuart comes to his house drunk. What an yeah. awesome scene that is. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's actually also the only scene worth watching in high society. Huh. Because it's also it's the first time you've got Frank and Bing. Really able to ping bong off of each other. <laughs> Bing bong. In, in, yeah, <laughs> I know. In history. Yeah. In, in history. history. Yeah. Really? Like, it's the first time they've ever shared a screen together is this movie. Huh. And you have some real life edge and animosity that feels like it's coming through. You know, I had not thought about that for 10, 15 years whenever I saw High Society, but I remember that scene. I remember it being good now that you mention it. Yeah. Huh. And the song's not even that great. No, but, but it kind of, the, you kind of forgive, you kind of like that song more than the others because at least it has some story, some narrative yeah. function. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, what, it's what you bring to it with at that point in their careers, Frank versus Bing. Right. And, mm. and it you feel it mm-hmm. in that scene. That's pretty cool. But I just, I love this. I love I mean, it's always fun when Jimmy Stewart gets to do something overtly comedic. He always nails it. He's great at that kind of stuff. Yeah, he so has to, good. He, he gets to play a straight man a lot, and he's really, really good at it. But when he just gets to do straight up overt, this is your big comedy scene, he just always nails it. And he's great. And I just, I love their two energies going against each other. Yeah. I love I love how Cary Grant just lets Jimmy Stewart walk away with the scene, and in so doing, walks away with the scene himself. <laughs> It's, it's just, what he's there doing the whole movie. It's right. just like I can. It's just yeah. It's it's a microcosm of of what his character is doing to Tracy. Right. Mm-hmm. I can let her walk off with Mike 
and mess around with George because I'm I I own this woman right and she will be mine and I own this movie and I can let Jimmy be awesome and hilarious and own this scene because I own this movie mm-hmm. and. Well, and there's so many stars that would calculate that the wrong way. You watch movies like this all the time. And I'm Cary Grant. I'm a big movie star. Jimmy Stewart has all this funny dialogue. He's got all the shtick he's doing. And so what do I do? I have to find something. So I'll be making faces. I'll be reacting. I'll I'll grab an apple and take a bite of it. Yeah, exactly. I'll just, (laughs) it really is that venal. (laughs) Brad Pitt, such a... Yeah, Brad. Such a vain. Brad Pitt's it. He'll be with George Clooney and the way that Brad Pitt steals scenes in those Oceans movies and he does it every time. <laughs> he takes a bite of something. Is he's eating peanuts or something like that and your eye goes to him and Brad Pitt, he, he walks away with the scene. You like Rusty's character better than George Clooney. I remember it, that it, he's named Rusty. I don't know who George Clooney's <laughs> name. Danny Ocean. Ocean. Danny Ocean. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the whole series is kind of named after him. But, but yeah, no, it's like, it's a really, it's a really petty move once you once you've recognized that that's what's happening, it's like, it's pretty nasty and weak. Yeah. Well, there were some like Donald Pleasance, the, the actor, Donald Pleasance, he played Dr. Loomis in Halloween and different things like that. He was famous for, he had made an, a science out of this. So he would figure out how to take a bite just as the camera was going to have to go to a different angle. And so the editor, when the coverage that they got back, would be forced <laughs> to edit the scene together. Like the only way the continuity would work, if you see what I'm saying, is oh. if we if we include Donald Pleasance in the next shot, like we can't, yep. like he's put his hand forward or something like that. So, oh my goodness. like you actually can't, you can't cut away from him yeah. because of the, the physical action. Like he would, he had actually figured out the science of being himself of cinematography as much of, as possible in every scene. Yeah. So people are really venal about that sort of thing. And, you expect them to be. They're Hollywood stars. That's what they're famous for being. But the fact that Cary Grant, not by any stretch of the imagination, a very nice man or anything, not, not famed for his warmth or anything like that. He's just willing to play this. I, I think he just knows I actually look really good if I just play this scene calm and still and reserved and a little bit amused and let the audience wonder what I'm thinking the whole time. Actually, a lot more points will accrue to me that way. I can win the exchange from spastic hilarious Stuart. if i just do nothing it's the, it's the only play and it's it's the right one i bet you i want to ask maybe you know if there's a scene in this movie that has some like uh, legendary lore some story factor fiction i'd expect it to be this one mm-hmm. like about uh anything that was ad-libbed or anything like that is there anything like Not really. that i think you know? i think i know that Stuart. Did some ad libbing. You know this story? No, I just happened to be reading the Philadelphia Story Wikipedia page before we did this, and I saw something, some anecdote. I thought about do to do. Oh, yep, there we go. Excuse me. At one point, Stuart slipped in his hiccuping during the drunk scene. Grant turned to him, surprised, and said, "Excuse me," and then appears to have stifled a laugh. The scene was kept and not reshot. So. So, that's so that line, that whole thing, which we brought up earlier. That's that's from a Turner Classic Movies broadcast as the source. So, so at least the the legend, yeah. the factor fiction, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. that that cute little moment was improv. It's a great little moment. Well, that's that 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 I think that only goes to my point. Uh, Cary Grant plays it completely cool, and then does one little thing like that, and effectively <laughs> steals, steals the scene. That's the thing that's you right. remember about, or right. that's the thing I remember yeah, about yeah. it. Is it's excuse great. me, like it's great. Right. Well, I think <laughs> it also humanizes Grant's character, actually, because it what it feels like is 
Well, not only do I tolerate Stewart's character, I'm kind of starting to like him. <laughs> yeah, in Cary, his own way. Cary Grant has a nice <laughs> slow. <laughs> he doesn't really ever quite warm up, but right to Stewart, but you feel like he's dethawed a little bit, maybe like 15 seconds worth of <laughs> microwave dethaw. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I don't know. I just think uh, so many actors wouldn't realize that it's all about stillness. And if you don't do anything, the audience will actually come to you as opposed to having to try and run out there and make the audience. I'm acting here. Especially if Stuart's got the part that's written. So that and if you're confident and aren't out there pandering to Catherine Hepburn, eventually She'll come to you. Yeah. No, it really serves the character well. It, it, it If Cary Grant is good at doing double takes and reactions and spit takes and like he, he can do that st- sort of stuff really well, you know, about as well as anybody, but he doesn't do any of that here because it's not the character yep. and it wouldn't make sense and it wouldn't be as funny. It's actually funnier to have Stuart just being ridiculous and Cary Grant just playing it cool. Yeah. There's two possible ways to make that scene work. One is... Grant's just like, what? And, and that, that's where all the laughs are. Uh-huh. But the other way is Grant's just taking it in stride. And that's better for the character and better for the comedy. Let me see. What else do we need to litigate in this movie before we call it quits here, fellas? Heppard and Stewart. Do you want to talk about sexually charged? That scene, the swimming pool, where for a moment there, their faces are close. And it. I don't know that I've ever seen a movie where it's more about two characters not kissing. Hmm. When are they going to kiss? Why aren't they kissing? Are they going to kiss? Obviously, that happens in every third movie, especially back, back when we had romance in movies. There'd be the, oh, their faces are close to each other. Are they going to kiss now? Will, will Zorro kiss Catherine Zeta-Jones? Or will <laughs> she kiss him? Or will... That sort of thing. But I don't know. Uh, this was a really charged version of that. Uh-huh. I don't think I would show this movie to... Eh, I don't know. Maybe it'd just go over younger kids' heads. Uh-huh. I don't know. But... Well, that stuff felt, especially in my first viewing of the movie when I wasn't enjoying it, that stuff felt especially gross to me. And I was just right, kind of like on my heels, like, why do I have to? No, there's no reason to, sh- to show this or let kids see this movie. Uh, yeah, and there's nothing so. in it. They're not going to like it. They would even yeah. like it. Yeah, they're not going to like it anyway. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. I think it's fun that this being an MGM picture, Jimmy Stewart is singing the most famous MGM song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Yeah, from the most <laughs> famous MGM movie. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't think of that at all. When he carries uh, Catherine Hepburn to the... <laughs> yeah, it would have never occurred to me to make that connection. Yeah, no, I mean, why pay for a song when you have Somewhere Over the Rainbow in the library of songs that you can use for free and uh, maybe remind people, oh yeah, I should buy that record. <laughs> These things are nothing if not calculated. Some Some bean counter gave a lot of thought to which song in our library can we have? It's a great choice. Jimmy Stewart saying, yeah, it's a perfect choice. Wouldn't surprise me if uh, Lydia was in their catalog too, but also wouldn't surprise me if not, because I think it's just an old standard, but I don't really know. You get, I think, another glimpse of Stuart's comedic range in that he 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 sings that song pretty well. Mm-hmm. So then you get to hear him sing in other movies and he sings not nearly as well, <laughs> like when he's singing Buffalo Gals in- uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? He's singing that for comedy- and you don't, I, don't know, I, I appreciate the way he sings that for comedy, hearing him sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, more. he can carry it. He, he actually, he was a little pitchy on Buffalo. He didn't have to be. Yeah. Young George Bailey would be that way. So that's how he played it. But yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just like adds a little bit of, of nuance to, to that scene and hearing him pretty much nail Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm-hmm. 
it's not not a pleasant, not the world's most pleasant voice, but no, it's fine. He could, yeah, a talented enough singer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then we get to the third act of this movie. Tracy wakes up with her headache, and we our characters need to litigate everything and uh, get us across the finish line. Yep. I don't know. I always it, this movie does always bog down for me a little bit around there. Slows yep. down just a bit, like. It's like, okay, we have all the chess pieces in place. Let's just checkmate somebody. Like, she needs to choose Stuart or Grant, and we know it's got to be one of them, and we know it's not going to be Kittredge, so yep. let's just get to it. One of those things, if you're watching this movie, it's because you like old movies probably, and you you just enjoy the milieu. You just like kind of living in that world, and you don't really mind that it's, a, it's, a, it's narratively can be a little bit sluggish, maybe. Well, it's not as sluggish in... If the audience is really trying to, in a world where you don't have that kind of salacious, what did or didn't happen mm-hmm. thing, you know, if if that's not like normal, right? Then there's more tension, sort of salacious tension around, yeah. you know, what really did happen, and and also you have the kind of slow humbling of her too to play with. So I mean, I think I think that whole I think context matters for how yeah. sluggish it plays. I think it wouldn't have played as sluggish. That's that's a good point. In a sex comedy today, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the tension of this being a point of honor. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, that's a yeah, good point. Yeah, and everybody needing to negotiate that. Yeah. Although the movie does dispense with <laughs> it's like, oh, you just like kissed him and hung out with him alone and swam with him in the pool until <laughs> three in the morning and got drunk with Oh, okay. That's cool. <laughs> Good. I'm glad nothing was done to stain your honor. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> it's like Yay! wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is where the movie's sex politics are crap. Like the idea Well, that- it plays with that. And then yeah. the other thing that you know is like it had that had to be the reality in the thing, but you also know that Cary Grant's character, like it makes no difference to him. It do, that, that's true. It makes right? no difference to him. And so, for our purposes, she might as well have. For Cary Grant's purposes, she might as well have. Right. The flailing about that turns into a fling, no matter how. It's not different than her dad's mm-hmm. flandering and how they play that. Yeah, right? it, does, it doesn't. Really did matter. it happen? Yeah. Didn't it happen? Yeah. It doesn't really matter for all intents and purposes. It did, even though we're saying maybe it didn't. For all intents and purposes, it happened and it doesn't matter to Grant. That's just part of the process. Of course, she was going to flail, have a fling, try to figure out herself in the process. She's lowered herself and now she's humbled. And that whole point was the humbling and coming down off of her pedestal and realizing that she's actually a pretty terrible person too. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was the process. You know, don't care. That's really the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that part of it's sweet in its way it's also icky in its way mm-hmm. it's yeah yeah it's, it's gross it is the it is the progressive sexuality of the time you know like it gary grant's actually to gary grant it actually doesn't matter and it shouldn't that's what the movie's telling us yeah like <laughs> who cares we all everybody wants to sleep with everybody in this world and everyone's going to sleep with everybody she probably slept with kittredge you know that doesn't matter none of them you know she can play with whoever she wants to play with but she can't she belongs to me at the end of the day and she'll come back to me mm-hmm. and Whatever you thought you had in her, she was using you. She can't use me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, I don't know what there. A little bit of a macho, sick thing. Yeah, it's a sick. Yeah, yeah. a little bit of a James Bond kind of. Yeah, know, just it's a, true. Yeah. 
Okay, well, we, I, I will say also part of my criticism of this third act as being sluggish is the criticism of someone who's seen the movie before. The third act, I think, is the part that least holds up to multiple viewings. I, I seem to remember the first time I watched it, I was on the edge of my seat as far as who's she going to end up with, what actually did happen. You know, even though it didn't yeah. feel as salacious to me as it would have somebody back then, you still are wondering about the plot points, which make all that stuff mm-hmm. go a lot faster or, or just feel a lot more intense than it does the second time. It's like, it's sunny and we're just hanging out. And it did make me understand and again, have more sympathy for the relative silliness of the quiet man and especially McClintock. Like you have all this tension with these two characters who have combustible chemistry. Okay. Let's just make the third act, the combustion. That's what everybody yep. actually wants to see. Yeah. So <laughs> if he's dragging her across let's island, blow it up yeah. and let's play up the music and let's have a bunch of laughs. Yeah. And that, obviously that would be the wrong move for this movie, but it does make it like with, with two Titans, with two godlike figures, so exaggerated as, as John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara, it does make sense. The only thing we, we can have these people do is physically fight each other <laughs> until John <laughs> Wayne wins, <laughs> which is, which is to say, Let's let them actually have sex on screen. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that, that's, that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's happening. It's that's the tension relief. We're gonna have them f- physically fight on screen, and it's a stand-in for for sex. Yep. In the catharsis of sex, after he wins her heart, and they're just gonna give it to you, and they're gonna make it funny. Right. That's what the quiet man's. That's what it's doing. That's what it's showing without telling. Yeah, and there's a bad way to do that. I don't necessarily know that the quiet man is the bad way though. I think I, think, I don't think it's the bad way. I think it's a story it. about sex and I think you can tell stories about sex and I would much rather I think see them see do it with a nice great modesty panel over the mm-hmm. the front of it. Which is exactly what the quiet man does and exactly what McClintock in its very silly way does and what this movie actually does less of. Like you almost wish we had a combustible slapstick scene because we could just have sex on screen so to speak, get it out of the way and be done with it. And so that tension has to boil yeah, they're Del- just gonna mm-hmm. they're gonna they're rubbing your nose in the tension yeah. without giving you a a kind of plausible deniability and with it, that results in catharsis. You just have to live with that tension and have your face rubbed in it. Right. I think it's nice to have plausible deniability sometimes. I think it's nice of, of the storyteller just to say, "Oh, actually, it's just a joke." Like it, it it's helpful. Yeah, and, and to, to illustrate how it's helpful, observe how much more salacious Philadelphia story feels where they don't actually say anything but the whole time they're just like it's about sex don't forget yep (laughs) (laughs) then in case you forgot let's rub your nose in her here's Catherine Hepburn's legs aren't they pretty well you don't even I think unless you're reviewing it in contrast to the Philadelphia story I don't think that you think to frame the quiet man so much in terms of sexual energy when's the last time you saw the quiet man I've never seen years I just watched it within the last couple of years, and I think it's pretty potent. Okay. Um, now, I saw it relatively soon after getting married, so that might have uh, made some kind of Impacted a difference. It. To, to a pretty fiery lady herself. Well, I just, I think that it, I guess, to my memory, there's such relative innocence about it, but there, maybe not. Well, there is. I mean, compared to the worldly wise characters of this of the decadent story. movie, yes, but... I don't know if you remember the scene where John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara get caught in the rain. Oh yeah. I forgot about and that. And they're like in a graveyard or something and the, it's, the wind is sweeping by them and she's trembling. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, it's pretty intense. Yeah. It is the kind of thing where 
I would be very much afraid that it would not go over a kid's head, even though it was hmm. not really showing anything all that. Like, it's pretty, Okay, it's something. Or we should just do The Quiet Man sometime. It'd be a fun movie. Yeah, it sounds about. like we should. We yeah. should. It's a great movie. Yeah, John Wayne's best. Yeah. Uh, yes. Unless I, you want to argue The Searchers. I mean, obviously, McClintock's the best movie and <laughs> teaches us how we should all <laughs> treat our wives. And... <laughs> I mean, tell me the one I'm not thinking of. It really is The Quiet Man or The Searchers, right? Yes. I would say if you just like hanging out with John Wayne, there are more fun John Wayne movies. I would include but Rio, if you're Rio Bravo, your, El Dorado, things like that. But, but if you're yeah. making your top 50 movies of all time, which John, you're making your time capsule. Oh, it's The Quiet Man, no question. I don't yeah. even think The Searchers really comes close, although I love The Searchers. But The Quiet Man is... I guess the only reason really to argue for The Searchers is... It's more iconically John Wayne. Iconic and... and American. And American and influence. Yes, that's true. But... Just um, like but, cinematically, The Searchers had... I mean, The, the Searchers gave us Spielberg and Lucas in hmm. a way. But I think my time capsule and the time capsule of most of the people that I love and respect... Whose taste on movies I might respect? We we don't we would we don't put the Quiet Man in I there. Think I think that's what I put. Yeah. Into, yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess the only thing we haven't talked about with this Philadelphia story is the actual end game. They all end up at the church. Yeah. Great. We rub uh, old Tracy Lord's uh, nose in her humbling a little bit more, allow the audience to feel good about her being thoroughly knocked off her pedestal in front of the whole audience, and but also she has some agency in it, and it's not. It's not as aggressive, although, although Cary Grant is ultimately a much more aggressive character than John Wayne. It's not as aggressive in its humiliation of her as uh, yeah, or being <laughs> marched across the plains of Ireland or yeah, or spanked in front of the crowd of <laughs> townsfolk and <laughs> McClintock. McClintock would be a really fun movie to talk about, actually, but I don't know why we ever would. Besides the <laughs> fact that it's just a fun reference point. I don't know what you guys think about the got any good hot takes on. Do you think that the movie should have given Jimmy Stewart a little bit more? agency or do you like where it i like where it landed lands be, uh, and, yeah, and because nice. he didn't deserve to have any more agency exactly in uh high society sorry to bring that movie up one last time does and so it's it turns into a double wedding oh lame and that that's super lame that's really and lame. again as contrast it's like to me it vindicates the choices that were made in philadelphia's story yeah when you start to think what else they could have done nothing else works yep yeah and i think if you make this movie today Hepburn does end up with Stuart because betas are actually alphas. Yeah. And so let's have the nerd claim the girl. Yeah. I don't know. We make this movie today. Maybe Ruth Hussey and Catherine Hepburn's characters just go off together as lesbians. (laughs) No kidding. Um, (laughs) Today sucks, but. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, what it actually does is it gives you hope in that sense that like, hey, wait a minute. The round of, uh, the, the stories that we've been telling that center on Beta's winning, and the fact that it doesn't actually work in real life—I <laughs> don't know. No, this, this movie tells you if you're a beta like Stuart, there's a woman who loves you. Great, awesome, good. If you have the faith to be an alpha, then you can win. Great, good. If you're a woman who's an alpha woman, there's a man who's strong enough to to get you. Don't you settle for anything less. Yeah, and if you're a I guess beta woman, since that's our formula, like uh, Ruth, Mas- uh, whatever her name is, Hussey, just play your cards right and have a little patience and grace and see what happens. Yeah. So those are all pretty ennobling sentiments in their way, filtered through some Hollywood crap of the time, but I don't know. 
probably not. I haven't read Taming of the Shrew for a while. Probably not any more crap than Shakespeare. Shakespeare filtered his characters through. I like this movie. I don't think that this goes in the pantheon of all time beloved Nathan movies, but no, it goes in the pantheon of all time respected Nathan movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think in terms of just craftsmanship, when you look at the acting, the directing, and the writing, I just don't know how you keep it out of the out of the conversation for top ten. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. It's. It's great. I, I think it does. At the end of the day, the reason I don't love it is it does have a likability problem. It's I th- you can yeah. really appreciate it's it a and bad respect story. what it's doing, but yeah, it's a bad story. And I mean, mm-hmm. but I again, I I think that's why I want to give it so much respect because it doesn't matter while you're watching it. I I'm not a snob. If a movie has a good or a book has a good story, I'm willing to look past a lot of bad craftsmanship, much more so than either of of you guys. Mm. I I don't mind coming out of I'm the last person that's going to come out of a dumb Marvel movie and be like I wish the dialogue was better if yep. I had fun and and me and Ben are some of the first <laughs> but but absolutely but for a movie to have such a bad story and still command still have me be in awe of it mm-hmm. and not just be like I don't care I don't care about the crafts how well crafted it was it was a bad story for it to I feel like for me for it to overcome that for me the movie says a Grant, lot to me. And, and you're Catherine Hepburn, and the movie just swaggered up and made you I take know. four steps it's back. I know. It's like I don't even like you. <laughs> There's nothing about you I like, but you had so much swagger, like you win. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's kind of like that. It's like I there's nothing in my natural sensibilities to commend this movie to me, but it was just so well done that it still like it got me. Ben, where do you place this movie? Hmm. I like respected, all-time respected, but not all-time favorite. I think that's true. It's a really enjoyable movie. Super well done. A lot to think about. Lots of great dialogue, but also gross. <laughs> so. Do you take out the dad and Uncle Willie, or you rewrite the dad and take out Uncle Willie? It would go a long way, I think. Yeah, If we were able to give these characters just a little bit more of our affection, open our hearts to them just a little bit more because we respected them them as moral agents just a little bit more yeah i mean even if you if you change the plot just a little bit more to make carrie grant the childhood sweetheart Mm -hmm. sort of kind of a vague insinuation towards the indiana jones and marion ravenwood style exactly he's not an ex-husband he's not yeah that indiana jones marion ravenwood kind of thing he's just the childhood sweetheart who went off to South America, who screwed it up with her, went off to South America as a writer and came back to save her from a bad marriage that was beneath her and to save her family name in the process. Suddenly he's Darcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be really good. Just a few moral tweaks to the story. and Well, you're making me think about what Jane Austen would have done with it. Yes, that's basically what you're doing. Right, yeah, that exactly. is what. It, yeah, yeah. By doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. why I brought Darcy in. Context clues, friends. I have a master of them. <laughs> I, I think you could go any number of directions with Dad. Actually, I think the idea of they got it wrong. Tracy went off, flew off the handle because her dad. She thought her dad did something that he would never mm-hmm. in a million years do. Is is interesting, and you could probably pull that off if you stack the deck that way. You could also just have the dad be bad. I don't know what you do with the dad. Actually, I'm not sure what Jane Austen would do with the dad. But if well, if you wanted 
And if you wanted to make the point, if you really believe that actually by being a brat of a daughter, she could have, and being something in somebody for her father to delight in and to feel admired by, if you want to, if you want to argue that point, Mm -hmm. that actually a loving and affectionate and feminine daughter can go a long way to shore up the the needs of old men that drive them to flandering. You're trying Which to make the point. Seems Just like put it in somebody point. else's mouth. Yeah. Right? You could punish the dad for his own sins, but then have mom say, hey, Tracy, like, come on. Don't look down on him. You had a part to play in this too. Yeah, we all did. We all did. I wasn't this and you weren't that. And we're mm-hmm. not excusing him. But when things like this happen, we have to also look at ourselves. You could put it in Uncle, you redeem Uncle Willie, put it yeah. in Uncle Willie's mouth mm-hmm. to come in and say, hey, your dad screwed this up. But I think part of why this kind of thing can happen is is this. And don't think you didn't have your own little part to play. Mm-hmm. We're all culpable. We're, we're a family here and we all, we're all infected with each other's sins. And nobody's letting your dad off the hook for his adultery, but... But that doesn't mean we all get to look down on it yeah. or whatever. You can you can try to make a point like that in a way that actually brings moral gravity I, I instead think you of dissipating I think it. You, mm-hmm. I think you could pull it off. I mean, you have to do it right. But yeah, I think that's, that it could be a good point. Yeah. If you just, it's a better story. Yeah, it's a better story. Yeah, the dad's a bummer in this movie, especially because he does actually, as we said, have some of the best rebukes of Tracy. Yeah. But you can't quite own them like you want to because they're coming from... A monster. A guy that reminds you constantly, like, I should be allowed to philander. It's all your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You owe it to me because you suck. Right. I have no moral agency in how you turned out, daughter, but you have moral agency in uh, my behavior now. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I will say, Dad, the way he is does make a lot of sense of why she's so high-strung and neurotic and, and terrible. So... If the movie just was willing to own a little bit more of that, like have dad be exactly the way he is, but just say, eh, it's not a good thing. Yeah. That could probably work. Well, yeah, I'm with you guys. I think this movie is a very good movie. It's not one that I really find myself wanting to go back to. No, I don't want to. I don't think I need to ever watch this again, probably. Yeah, probably not. I might pull up the Stuart Grant confrontation on YouTube from time to time or the. Yeah. There are things that'll stick with me. The French stuff, some of the some of the comedy stuff. Mm. I do I do also wish that this movie was more funny in its third act. Like it just sort of stops being a comedy at a certain point around the time that her and Stuart are uh, dilly dallying in the by the swimming pool, and then it sort of remembers to be a comedy in the last five minutes. But there's not as much. I guess there's a little bit with Dinah and seeing them and all that stuff. Yeah, but. Uncle Willie, Dinah, tell him about your dreams. Slapsticking around a little yeah i like that uncle willie stop shouting uh, if yeah <laughs> if you can forget about uncle willie's everything else yeah he's got right. he's got he's... some good material yeah as yeah. yeah, a more of a respecter than a lover but it's a good movie well it's they bring so much yeah dinah and uncle willie are tough to have to rely on for your comedic relief when you've put all five mm-hmm. of your main characters and in or four of your main characters in such uh, points of tension. Mm-hmm. Like none of them can really credibly bring, the only one who can credibly bring any humor to it is somebody who has to play cool and straight, which is Cary Grant at right. that point. Cause he's the only one who's not 
conflicted and dealing with themselves and feeling all the tension. So it's just a tough, tough, tough spot to get out of until you've resolved that tension. This is a totally random thought, not really worth ending the episode on. But the other thing that I do always think when I see a movie like this that has a big speech about why it was okay for such and such a character to philander is, gee, I guess that screenwriter was a philanderer. philanderer. Yep. (laughs) And was letting his wife know or his daughter know. Mm. It was all her fault. (laughs) Yep. I mean, it, it does seem so just from forget about the moral perspective for a second, just artistically, it feels so cheap like it's 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 yeah. messaging it's, it's, it's taking, didactic it's actually taking a shot at somebody mm. and obviously so in a way that yeah. rips you out of the movie a little bit yeah my That's wife exactly and my daughter right. didn't understand me and we're and, and my, i'm gonna make sure hmm, that yeah. if they ever watch this movie they do yeah which you can take a long walk in the sticks mr screenwriter yeah you should have raised your daughter better and uh led your wife better and maybe they you know, you, you know would have liked you and <laughs> yeah yeah. And then and, you should And regardless, how about you honor your vows? Yeah. Jerk. Wuss. Coward. Effeminate. <laughs> <laughs> just, just throwing in. <laughs> just throwing in, fellas. All right. Well, folks, there you go. I would recommend if somebody, for some weird reason, has listened to this whole thing, but they never done watched Philadelphia Story, watch Philadelphia Story, says Ben. Watch Philadelphia Story, says Nathan. Jake, if somebody hasn't seen it and they listen to this whole thing, I mean, they might as well. They spent more time listening to a podcast than it would have taken to actually watch the movie. <laughs> no kidding. <Yeah>. So <laughs> you could give a couple more hours to Philadelphia's story. It, it's worth having seen. Yeah. But but it's not worth watching. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's a Mark Twain. It, it's a classic in the Mark Twain sense of. Yep. I, I, I agree. But I don't know. You'll have fun watching it. I don't yeah. Know. You'll have fun watching it. This is a murderer's row of talent. If nothing else, then just watching three of the great cinema greats of the 20th century do their stuff yeah yeah all together look i i don't fault anybody for not watching it and i don't think it's must watch i also wouldn't really fault anyone if they told me this was their favorite movie though because yeah. it's got that much it's got pedigree a lot and, going for yeah, it yeah it's just like mm-hmm. if you love old movies and you love Cary grant and jimmy stewart and Catherine hepburn then well fella this this is the movie for you <sighs> or lady fell fell all right folks Sanity of the Movies, produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me, associate produced by Ben. Go to patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies to hear thoughts about things, to support us, first of all, but then to hear our reviews of Clone Wars, The Mandalorian, WandaVision. We're reviewing that one as they come out, having fun, reviewing a show that's exponentially better written than The Philadelphia Story. That's right. If you thought you liked the dialogue in Philadelphia Story... Boy, howdy, will you like the dialogue in One Division? Yeah. <laughs> you really haven't heard dialogue until you've heard dialogue that's delivered by, what is that thing that Aaron Sorkin always likes to put into his movies? Until you've heard Monica Rambo say dialogue, you haven't heard Mozart the way he's meant to be played. <laughs> so, there you go. Until next time, folks. Stay yar. <laughs> <laughs> Stay yar. <laughs> Go ahead, Jake. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jake, save us from stay yar. <laughs> you were on your phone. I thought maybe you were actually prepping for this for the first and only time. <laughs> no, I actually did think about it last night and I had a couple, but now uh, I didn't write any of them down and now I don't know. <laughs> it's Bill's money. <laughs> <laughs> with the, what is it, with the rich and mighty, always a little patience? With the, yeah, something like that. I think you have to get it right, though. The withering gaze of the goddess. 
the withering gaze of the goddess. I didn't want to be worshipped. I just want to be loved. Oh, boo. Cry me a river and then show me an Audrey Hepburn movie so I can see how it's actually supposed to be done. 